Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan, and I started this podcast because I was born and raised in this community and with several intentions in mind. Um, I read them at the beginning of every episode. Number one, to break the veil of silence that has long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what you are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. To number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and lightwashing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, to process their own emotions, to get somatic therapy and other therapy and support as needed, to draw your own conclusions and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. Today's guest, I want to welcome Shanti Oshan, previously known as Shanti Karamkar. She has been practicing Kundalini Yoga since 2014, but became deeply involved when she met her teacher in 2019, Isa at a Sufi retreat in Southern California. This is when she vowed to seek truth through the guidance of God's voice, no matter what. She started teacher training in Oceanside, California, and dove headfirst into her path, going to Satnam Fest, summer solstice, followed by winter solstice. Last March, she went to the Española Ashram to be a farm intern 
on Kulsa family farms and wound up getting caught in the web of illusions in the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community there. Even though there were red flags everywhere, she ended up falling in love with a man in the community this past June, marrying him, and then breaking it off on her honeymoon three weeks later after finding out that he was lying about who he said he was. The marriage never became legal, thank God. Having experienced narcissistic and misogynistic behavior, lies, manipulation, and abuse within the community in Española, and with this man, she is here to share her story and trust that God always divinely protects her because the truth will always prevail. She's known as the metamorphosis mentor, assisting beings in their inner healing and transformation as she is learning herself. I want to welcome you, Shanti Oshan. Thank you for Thank being you on so the much for having me. Thank you for having me. Wow. Wow. So I just want to say what makes you come forward right now? This is all very fresh. Mm -hmm. This just happened recently. It sounds like the pinnacle of your experience just came forth. So I would like to um, just what inspired you to come onto the podcast now? Well, when I was on my way out of the ashram, I was filled with anger and rage, feelings of betrayal. Um, I never got to be heard or seen from anybody in that community. And I really wanted a chance to be heard and to just feel seen for who I truly am, to be seen for my soul and not what other people manipulate my image to be mm. so yeah I'm really grateful to be here and to share my story to share my experiences in hopes that it inspires somebody else yeah wow like I'm I'm a, a little overwhelmed by the freshness and I'm wondering in the midst of coming all of this coming out in in March of 2020 were you aware of what came forward or can you give us the listeners a little bit about um, going to the community? Like you knew about what in relation to your relationship with Kundalini yoga, you know what I'm saying? Since hearing mm -hmm. about it and then having all this just happen. I'm just curious about that. Mm -hmm. um, so do you mean 2021 this year when I went to the ashram or when the allegations came out last March? Yeah. So it sounds like since 2019, you were really into Kundalini yoga. So obviously when mm -hmm. all this broke open, what was your relationship to what quote you found out and then how oh, you okay. ended up going to the Española ashram? Like before mm -hmm. we get into your whole story, I kind of want to know, like, since no, you obviously knew because you were a part of the Kundalini yoga community. So what was your relationship to the allegations? If you go end up living, going to the Kulsa farm in Española? Mm hmm. So I remember when I lived um, in the upstairs part of my teacher's house and I came across Premka's story online and I came across the actual like allegations and the lawsuits and I was like pretty taken aback by it. So I approached him and I asked him like I asked him about it 
And he remained neutral as he does. He always wants me to just learn to trust myself and to trust in God and to trust my own intuition. So that was kind of his take on that. So I, I mean, I learned on my own. And then when the, the rest of the allegations came out in March, 2020, I actually wasn't practicing as much. Um, I like, I just lost my job because of the pandemic. And I was just, you know, like most of us, we were kind of lost in what we were supposed to be doing. So when I learned about the allegations, I felt sick to my stomach and I actually stopped practicing totally for two months um, because I didn't really know what was true and what wasn't. It was like, there were just so many different voices that I was hearing. Like some people were like, yes, like I believe this is true and blah, blah, blah. And then there's the other side of like, oh, well, we don't really know. <laughs> and I just, yeah. So, I mean, I moved through that. And the only thing I really knew about it was the um, the official like paperwork about these lawsuits and about all of that information that many of us read. And I read through it. And I, you know, the first thing I thought was, I was not there. So I, and I'm not a judge and it just, so it was hard for me to really like take a side or a stance. You know, I didn't really know what to do. It took me a while to process it. And then going forward, um, going to the farm for the internship, I was only going there for the permaculture internship. I wasn't necessarily going there for the ashram. Um, what I'm doing here in Costa Rica is focusing on building a permaculture farm and a spiritual center with other like-minded beings. So it was simply an opportunity for me to learn about farming for three months. Um, obviously, that changed really quickly. <laughs> so you're on this traveling journey as this being that you are and you end up kind of coming through the community in Espanola more on this internship and then get swooped up in this, in a, in a whole level of the community that you didn't even really know. Like what I'm hearing is that when this is so fascinating to me, let me just pause. First of all, <laughs> I want to just, I want to have all listeners. I want to use better language than allegations because I okay. think what you're speaking, not to you, I'm just saying out loud to uh, listeners, um, that language itself is so nebulous and it's not naming it for what it is, right? And mm -hmm. so there were reports of abuse and there were lots of reports of abuse. And so it sounds like being a, a yoga student in it, the language I'm hearing from you is like, I don't want to take sides. Let me be neutral. Let me be in this <laughs> Let me be in this space in which, uh, you know, all beings, will, all karma will work with self fat. And like, this is a part of this, like, whoa, you're speaking that formula of narcissism and misogyny and how these, how the community is steeped in that. But that when you heard about it, you didn't necessarily know it spread to the whole community. You only thought it was in relation to why be himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's all I was aware of at that time. 
So the reason I want to point this out to listeners is because this is a part of the language that perpetuates through the Kundalini yoga machine and Mm -hmm. teachers not naming abuse and using narcissistic formulas that are, that was a YB formula that's perpetuated through the teachings, even if it's meant through this nice spiritual lens, what it's actually doing is it's predatory it's predatory formulas wrapped in clothing called neutrality. So as we listen to her story, I really want you to know what, like, this is what stands out to me about this happening right now, recent that you knew and were aware, but then you've changed your relationship. And yet here you, you don't necessarily know that it's, it's steeped in our culture, that it's a part of all of this. Right. And that anyone can get, Oh my gosh. I would love it if you take us back and let us know how this this journey ha- happened for you and give us some give us some awareness. Mm-hmm. Well, I discovered Kundalini Yoga back in 2014, and I had started meditating through the chakras. Um, I started learning about the energy centers and started feeling really connected to earth in a deeper way. Um, So I bought this book of chakras and started meditating and had some really beautiful experiences. And then I really wanted to take a yoga class and I had taken yoga classes but I wanted something deeply meditative and less focused on the fitness aspect, something that would allow me to go inside. So I Googled meditative yoga near me. (laughs) I was living in Boston and I found a class in Cambridge. So I went. Um, I had no idea what to expect. I didn't know anything about this kind of yoga or the people who do it or the teachers or anything. And I show up immediately. I feel uncomfortable um, because the person who's greeting me is also the teacher, which I didn't actually know that at the time. And she looked at me like I wasn't in the right place, um, which I later found to be extremely common in the Kundalini yoga community when you're covered in tattoos. So that was like immediately weird. (laughs) I was like, I just want to feel better. And I paid for the class. So I'm just going to (laughs) go. And I go in and it's only two other students. So three students total and the teacher very small, intimate room. And, you know, they're chanting weird stuff. And I'm just like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm doing it and I'm trying. And I could feel that the teacher wasn't really like, like she didn't really care that I was new. Um, You know, I've taken other classes where teachers really take more they just care a little bit more when there's a new student, you know, they want to make sure that that new student understands. So this was not the energy in the class at all. Um, Anyway, take the class. I leave. I'm still like a little uncomfortable and I feel this relaxed, energizing feeling and I like it. 
I don't take another class for three more months and I go to the same studio and I have a similar experience. I, I don't go back for a while. <laughs> I'm like, that's just, it was very like, it was culty um, because like all those others, the other two or three students would go and get food with the teacher after. And, you know, they didn't invite me, of course not. And so, yeah, I mean, that was just my first like actual interaction with it but I liked the way it made me feel. And that's what I really paid attention to. So when I go on with my life, um, I'm still living in Boston. I'm still meditating. I'm still practicing like some Kundalini meditations. And I end up leaving Boston to move to San Diego, California um, to really just deepen my spiritual path and to heal in a deeper way. And I just, I felt magnetically pulled to go out there, which is when I take my next Kundalini yoga class. And I take it with a teacher named Hardave. Um, and my first experience with him is I'm just like wowed by him, by his radiance, his energy, like this sense of peace that I see emanating from him, from his eyes. And at this point in my life, I'm kind of, I'm in the dark night of the soul, um, which if anyone doesn't know what that is, it's kind of like when you're awakening to your path and it seems like there's many like challenging things happening and you're like facing yourself and your patterns, but you, you're kind of lost in it. I guess that's the best way I can explain it right now. Um, so I yeah, was, pause. I uh, you know, another yeah. way is just when life just turns into an absolute fuckery and nothing <laughs> ends up working, everything ends up falling apart. And you're just like, yes. there has to be another fucking way to look at this. Yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> there must be some shifting that my whole system wants to go through. That's also another way to say dark night of soul, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, carry yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, everything was starting to become more of a mess it was like when I got to San Diego I'm like high off of San Diego and like these new friends I have I'm all excited but that quickly kind of dwindled because my soul knew what I was attracting and what I was needing so it was bound to unfold at some point or another and yeah, so I'm like, I'm judging myself in his class. At the time, I smelled like weed because I smoked weed before going to his class. And I'm like, freaking out internally at this point. Um, I believe this is 2016. And but I have a great experience in the class. Nonetheless, um, I leave the class still feeling like a little awkward in the community, like in that energy field, but I'm grateful in, that I showed up. That's in San Diego. Yeah. And yeah, so you're taking, at, yeah, go ahead. This was at cosmic flow studio. Um, Mayor Bonnie is the one who owned it, but she just opened a new one. I guess that one closed. But my question is like, were, were your teachers at the time speaking to you about not smoking while you're taking classes or that was just your own internal judgment no it was my internal judgment I mean they didn't say anything and okay. when I did my training I mean I was kind of told that if somebody does come in smelling like weed it's best to not say something to them about it 
So maybe he was kind of following that same guideline. Um, I, but yeah, I, I was just I curious because yeah, no, yeah, I didn't come to a class again stoned after that. <laughs> so yeah, so then I, I mean, I took a few other classes with him and then this energy starts building inside of me and I just feel, I really want what he has. I really want that inner peace. I don't want to feel broken anymore. Um, so one morning at an after party, actually, I was a bit of a raver at the time. And my one of my good friends, Noel, who's a DJ music producer, he also did his teacher training twice, um, just an all around amazing being. I told him out of nowhere, it was like this download came through to me as we are sitting outside. I'm like, I feel like it's my destiny to be a Kundalini yoga teacher. <laughs> and Noel knows my spiritual teacher now, um, Isa. And so this is where I end up. Um, the dark night of the soul goes really deep. Um, I lose my job. My roommates get us evicted. And I go through a breakup all at the same time. Um, and I tell Noel all of this. I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, <laughs> kind of want to die right now. Like, I don't really have, I don't know what to do. And he told me that he can get me a sponsorship for the Sufi retreat for New Year's Eve. It was a, like a seven day retreat uh, back in 2018, 2019 for New Year's Eve. And he's like, if you want to make this work, do it. And I'm like, okay. So I made it happen. I was like, whatever. Like, I don't really have anything else to do. Like, I, I don't want to feel like shit anymore. And I don't, I kind of believed Noel and I still do. Noel's one of my best brothers and friends. I'm very grateful for him and Isa. So I go to this retreat. Just to get clear so that we're staying clear, Hardave yeah. is not Isa or Noel. Hardave is someone else. No, that was so Isa, Isa I'm is I'm just trying to follow you because, yeah. I, say that again. So Isa, my teacher, is not part of 3HO or KRI at all. Got um, it. Okay, so that's yeah. like a whole other left field. All right, we're trying yeah. to keep you grounded here to tell us the 3HO story. So okay. help, help, me, um, help me stay with that. Um, Okay. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, I met my spiritual teacher at this retreat, which is okay. the being who sponsored me to be in teacher training for Kundalini yoga. Got it. So you so go to this Sufi retreat yeah. and you get to go there for that, that, that sponsored thing. And then there yeah. you get the download to go to teacher training. I got the download to do teacher training before that. Um, but it's just continued to grow at this retreat. Meaning then this, this, your spiritual teacher, Isa, uh, pays for your teacher training. Yeah, which I mean, that's a little later. Like first I move into um, the upstairs of his house. Um, but yeah, he, he is aware that I want to do teacher training. So that's like locked in. Um, and it. he tells me like, we'll make it happen. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So... Okay. So, I mean, yeah, I go through the retreat. I move in with Issa because I'm homeless and he offers to help me, um, which 
saved my life. And I do the teacher training, the KRI level one teacher training. Um, and it totally transforms my life. Um, where, where is the teacher training and who do you do it with? Oceanside, California and Sock Carr from Canada and Gudu Mare from LA did it. Although Gudu Mare does not live in LA anymore. Got it. Okay. So, carry on. Yeah. Just getting clear. Just trying to keep the timeline. So you go from San yeah. Diego to Oceanside and how long is the teacher training? Like over a 10 month period or is it, how is that? Mm-hmm. How is that? Okay. Yeah, so Oceanside is technically in San Diego, um, but San Diego just has all these little towns. And it was nine months. Um, Yeah, it's definitely very in-depth, very long. And I mean, I feel like my dark night of the soul kind of (laughs) continued during this experience. Um, I end up moving out of Issa's house and getting a little distracted after I finished my teacher training, but I do want to point out there were like a few red flags during the training. Um, For instance, Issa would talk to me about how KRI can sometimes put people in a box. And he explained to me that he's not meant to be put in the, in a box And he was kind of, he was my mirror in this conversation. And deep down, I felt like I was never really meant to be put in a box. What I mean by box is when somebody tells you to live a certain way, talk a certain way, do things a certain way to fit their narrative and fit their mold, um, which I believe KRI does that a lot. Can you Um, share with us how you experienced that in in your experience, what did you get told to do and stuff? Well, you go into the teacher training and I mean, you're immediately encouraged to cover your head and wear all white. And you're also immediately encouraged to dress modestly. And they say it's encouraged, but if you don't do that, you receive judgmental stares and you feel uncomfortable and left out. So it's like, (laughs) So describe, can you describe some experiences where that happened to you? Yeah. um, I mean, to be honest, I can't really remember because I fell into it right away. It was like, I, I mean, I believed, I believed it at the time. So I was wearing a turban. I was covering, I was wearing all white, you know, I, I went all in because I didn't want to be judged. But I don't I don't remember like a specific instance of that that I can really share with you at this time. So what I hear you saying is like you if you chose not if you just chose to wear like your spaghetti strap and wear whatever you're saying the language was was encouraged. But if it didn't happen, then you could feel the judgment either from the teacher or the people in the room or just the whole atmosphere. So then you got swept up in it and you enjoyed it. Like at that time, you you're giving us the reflection of your awareness now, but at the time you were actually like very into it. Is that what I'm hearing you say? The most I felt judgment with was my tattoos um, 
And the language that was used, it was like, basically, if you don't dress this way, then you could have your teaching certificate taken away when you are teaching, because it says it, um, we sang a contract at the end of our teacher training, and they kind of told us about that. And they explain like you, you know, you are vowing to cover your head when you teach, you're vowing to wear all white when you teach. Um, and seek vows is a whole other like story, which I'm not going to touch upon right this second, but I took my seek vows at one point and that, you know, that's a whole other list of things that you cannot do. Wow. Um, I do remember this from teacher training level one and that contract. I remember bringing it up like, gosh, this is, this is no, I, I, how am I supposed to promise to do those things? I remember th- for, for myself. Anyway, keep yeah. going. So for listeners that you don't know, Shanti, she has uh, tattoos down her arms. I don't know if you have them more, but all the way down like sleeves. I do. Yeah. No, so I, I have tattoos all over my body. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Because obviously listeners can't see you. So I want to make sure that we communicate that properly. Um, so, okay, you're in teacher training. You're noticing that. But at the same time, you're at the time you're getting into it. So you cover your head like you just go into it. You're oh, not yeah. necessarily repulsed by their judgment. You more conform to it. Exactly. Um, brainwashing could be another good term to use here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just told, I got very into it. Um, I did as much as I possibly could at once. That's why I go to Sat Nam Fest and Summer Solstice while in teacher training. Um, and then, you know, later winter solstice, I like dive deep head first and I just want to get as much out of it as I possibly can because my relationship to the yoga is so powerful and so transformative. It gets me so high and helps me face myself in ways that I really need to, to heal as my early life was extremely traumatizing. So it's basically like the first kind of therapy that really works for me or does something for me. So yeah, I, I started diving deep, um, doing anything that I can. So yeah, I'm like, okay, cool. Like I'm going to wear a turban. I'm going to learn how to tie a turban well. And I get all of the clothes, all the white clothing, the chunies and all that. <laughs> And, you know, I even attempt to cover my tattoos when I'm at Sat Nam Fest and Solstice because I feel self-conscious about them, um, which is, which is horrible. I would purposely wear leggings that would cover my leg tattoos. And yeah, Mm. that's kind of how that started getting going. Wow. And you're loving the yoga and feeling really high and getting connected to the community. So it's like both is happening, it sounds like. Yeah. And I even remember at summer solstice, that's where I started meeting a lot more people. I go by myself, not knowing anybody, which is, I mean, it was really scary to say the least. Um, but I remember having a conversation with somebody. I asked them like about taking my seek vows and they told me that I would never be able to because I have too many tattoos so that was like 
yeah, that was a big, um, that still impacts me. And that the tattoo thing like shows up over the years again and again, you know, it's like, it's really awful. Like I, I had a child ask me while living at the ashram this year, if I had been in jail because I have so many tattoos. Yeah. That's the kind of programming that's going on over there. Yeah. Wow. I've had, yeah, I've had so many interactions with the tattoo things that really like threw me off, made me feel bad. And they, Speak the them out loud has, if you know if you can remember more. We'd love to hear them. Yeah, I remember. I remember always feeling kind of left out um, at Satnam Fest, Summer Solstice, and Winter Solstice, and I only went to those three in 2019. But I never really. It was like I wanted to belong, and when I dressed the part and fulfilled these other beings narratives and these molds that they created through KRI. Um, I felt more of that sense of belonging, but it was never truly there. Um, I remember at Satnam Fest, I spent a lot of time by myself because I felt really uncomfortable. Because um, I didn't know anybody and I was so new and it's like, there's these cliques everywhere, which Mm. for those who aren't familiar with this community, it's, there's different like hierarchies and there's different like levels of fame, if you will. Like if, you know, first of all, if you did your teacher training, you're considered higher than somebody who hasn't done a teacher training yet. So I was still in my teacher training and I would have conversations with people and be like, yeah, like I'm in it right now. They're like, oh, wow. And it would be like this. They wouldn't say it out loud, but it's just this judgmental energy of like, I'm better than you. And they really have a way they have this artistic way of doing that. These beings that I came across and yeah, it felt, it definitely felt yucky, but I, I wanted so badly to belong that I didn't really care. You know, I was willing to do whatever it took. And yeah, so I just, I keep going. Um, summer solstice. I had some really profound experiences at White Tantric Yoga. I met a being named Jot Singh Kalsa who um, sells jewelry and pins at the different festivals. And just last year, he said something very inappropriate to me in a phone call. This is not easy for me to share, but um, I hope I'm not like jumping like all over the place. I'm just You're saying, sharing your story. Best. You're sharing okay. your story, sis. <laughs> We're doing a really courageous job I just want you to know okay so I just want to share some background of Jot Singh and how I met him yeah um he does like Khalsa Raj jewelry and like he has the website and he always has the biggest booth at summer winter solstice and I was looking for a chain for a pendant that I bought and I came across somebody and 
I asked, I, we just started talking. It was somebody else at a different booth. They had their stuff. And I'm like, I'm looking for a chain for this pendant. Like, do you have any recommendations on where I go? And they suggested Jot Singh. So I go over there and he's very like charismatic and just like all decked out in jewelry, like perfect turban, perfect like garments. And I'm like, somebody told me to come over here for a chain. I'm like, I'm nervous because I, I, I had so much social anxiety here. <laughs> and immediately starts asking me questions like about my life, you know, where I've come, what I've come from, like why I started doing Kundalini yoga. And so I, I explained to him, like I experienced a very abusive childhood. I experienced a lot of abandonment from my birth parents. You know, I, so I share some of that with him. Um, I share with him that I had been sexually molested as a kid and these different things. Um, we just keep talking and he offers me a job. He says, um, you work a few hours for me and I'll give you jewelry. I'm like, okay, sure. Like I was just, I was trying to meet people. This seemed, he seemed like a really great kind of uncle being for me to meet. Um, pause. Great. Did you say yeah. uncle, uncle being, right? Yeah, like an language? uncle. Yeah, like family, family energy, um, okay. safe, safe energy. So I just want to pause and have listeners listen to that, right? The aunt and uncle, a part of the, the language of the 3HO community. We know that those of us that have been around a long time, we know that this is common, right? This these levels of, of sense of hierarchy of importance based on what she had said. And then also this auntie and uncle trust factor that's kind of built into the atmosphere. So keep going. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I worked for him for the whole solstice in addition to um, the volunteer work that I did. So my first solstice, I was pretty much just working the whole time um, for free, which as I've learned in your other videos with other people, um, Seva work is very common. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that was my first summer solstice experience. I literally worked the whole time. I think I took two or three classes. Um, so anyway, Jot Singh and I developed this relationship, you know, I, really like him I think he's kind of badass in a way like the way he carries himself he's a god-loving man he speaks highly of his wife and eventually tells me I'm like a daughter to him mm. so next comes winter solstice and he wants to invite me back as his manager um so this is paid and he offers to pay for my flights. And so, you know, I'm really psyched on them. Like, okay, cool. That's amazing. Like I, I don't have to lose money from taking time off of work and I can go deep in my practice and learn and grow and heal. So I go and, you know, we do the whole thing and 
when the ending comes, when it's time to pay me, he acts like a typical businessman. Um, despite the fact that I sold a $20,000 piece of jewelry for him, um, in addition to a lot of other pieces, but because we discussed the hourly and plus the flight, and I was also exhausted by this point since I was still volunteering and working for him the whole time for winter solstice, getting up for sadhana, um, I was exhausted. So it was just easy to be like, okay, fine. Like, I'll just accept that even though I felt that I was worthy of a lot more. What were you accepting? Um, my payment for working for him in money. He's so he, me. he just paid you less than you had agreed or less than you thought or what? Um, it was a little less than I thought. Yeah, because he said it, we agreed on an hourly and then the flight costs. And then he said, if I did really well, he would give me a little bit more. And I did do really well. I was selling. So I knew how much money I was making him. But Got it. So if I hear you yeah. correctly, he, 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 the agreed amount on the flights and the, and the hourly wage that he paid, but this kind of the language of I'll give you more if you do well, wasn't necessarily yeah. like solidified or written down no. or anything specific. So it was more just like the energy between you two. So that's mm -hmm. the part that it sounds like you don't feel God as fulfilled as you anticipated it should have. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And okay. So I've, we're clear. I've noticed that I've noticed this is a common theme in this community is they kind of leave you chasing for more. Um, that's why there's like these hmm. different levels that you move up and it's like, you just want to be more well-known or you want to like try to make more money. You want to be more respected more accepted. So yeah, that oh, happens. God. Can we pause and, there? Did yeah. you just say, did you just say there's something about they leave you wanting to, to more that there's just the next, like, like a little bit more that like to chase a little bit more like the next level. Like it's never yeah. enough you have to get this. Is that what I heard you just say? Yeah. Wow. Yep. That's, that's what I, uh, that's my experience. Um, and is that similar to what you were saying in terms of like, like if you were the low level and just take your teacher training versus the next, like meaning all the kind of hierarchy of levels of, of importance yep. or fame? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, because when I took my level two teacher training, I felt like I was being more respected and taken seriously than having just taken my level one. It's just, it's, very bizarre pattern. Um, but mm. yeah, I want to mm. share the so inappropriate comment that Jot Singh said last year. Um, well, so pause. I him. Wait, pause. So yeah. then so that happened at winter solstice, the payment. And so you just kind of agreed. I just want to leave it off where you said you just kind of agreed. Yeah. You just like, okay, but you were left feeling like that, that didn't sit right. And then you carry on. And this is what year again, this is winter solstice, 2019 into 2020. Correct. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. Carry on. Thank you. So then 2020 comes, um, the pandemic gets going. I like many, I, I lost my two jobs and my, this roommate can't pay the rent gets us evicted and other stuff happens that, 
I end up moving um, and I choose to move to Washington state to be with a friend, um, to just kind of heal from these intense like pandemic experiences I had. And she offers me a room in her house for free to just come and meditate and just be safe and just heal. And one night, one early morning, um, Sadna, I'm like, I'm crying a lot and I'm feeling just really upset and sad. And I had called Jot Singh like a number of times since I had met him um, to just catch up or talk or to ask for advice. And this night I'm very upset, vulnerable, um, and he's, he comes out with this comment while I'm crying. And he says that his balls hurt because his wife won't touch him. He says this, he is much older than me. He's in his seventies, if I had to guess. And why would he feel the need to say that? And I, I gaslighted myself for months after that. I, I literally brainwashed myself that I didn't hear what he said, but I know what I heard. And when I, I on the phone call, I asked him, I'm like, what? Like, why are you saying that? And then he changes the subject to give some kind of advice. And like I said, I Hold on. Push it off to the side. Hold on. So in that moment, when you heard that comment, he says that comment, you literally say back what? And then change the subject and carry on. And then you carry, then you're gaslighting yourself as to whether you. He changes the subject. To to move into kind of more advice. Yeah, he changes the subject. When, but you inserted, you said. Exactly. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he acted like it didn't happen. Wow. And there's never any conversation about that ever again. And I also buried it inside of me up until a week ago, actually a week ago, I spoke about it to someone. Um, but yeah, that was definitely super uncomfortable. Um, and it's been super uncomfortable processing that. And yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you talked since? He was like, he, yeah, actually. So he was actually, I found out not too long ago that he was one of the people who tried to stop the wedding, but he never said a word to me about it. Okay. There is a number of people who tried, there's a number of people who tried to stop the wedding. Um, and he, was one of them, but not any of them ever said anything to me. Well, that's interesting. Just kind of behind scenes, so to speak, that you learned about later. Yeah, I even purchased a pin from him for my turban for the wedding. Um, so I did. So you, I let me just say this correctly. As much. Okay, okay. But you still did. I didn't stay didn't in touch him with him as much. I, yeah, I, I just... I tried to bury like that feeling um, from that conversation, 
but yes. it did make me feel yucky. And so I didn't reach out to him as much as I previously had. Makes so much sense. If that makes sense. Oh, so much sense. And you were saying that you were gaslighting yeah, and so trying to long. pretend like you weren't hearing it, that you didn't hear what you said. So that's a, your own internal process that you were explaining. Yeah. And that comes from the conditioning that women seem to carry people who identify as a woman who have a womb that if we speak up about things like that, we rarely get justice, which is why it took me up until now to be speaking up on this podcast because I was not listened to at the ashram at all. Not one person listened to me or heard me about with what took place there. Okay, well, bring us to that point so we can hear what took place. But what yeah. I'm hearing now is that at this, this is 2020, and yeah. obviously the, uh, the reports of abuse are coming out, and it's not just the book, but you're also, it sounds like, whether it's the relation, you know, um, your kind of connection here with Jod Singh or other people in the community, you are um, just taking it all in, in terms of under trying to understand your path and your journey of like, what's mm -hmm. next for you and like, what's mm -hmm. the next stage of your growth. And so when you heard about the reports of abuse, who did you ask? Cause that's the same time as this was, who were you having conversations with or, or learning about in terms of what was coming forward in that, in March of 2020? Yeah, so I mean, the first person I spoke to was my boyfriend at the time, who is a Punjabi Sikh fan. Um, but he, I mean, he's, he's very unique as being a Punjabi Sikh man. He's just a little background on him. He's lived in the US since he was three, um, is very much in the American culture, lived in London for a while. So Anyway, he was the first person they told. Um, and I was like, I don't know what to think of this. And he told me, like, you know, this has been going on for a while. This isn't the first time that um, people reported issues they had with Yogi Bhajan. Um, I'm like, okay. Had this incident on the phone? Had this incident with, mm -hmm. with Joe Singh happened already after you found out, or was this prior to you finding out in that? It, uh, the reports of abuse came out before my conversation with Joe Singh. My conversation with him took place in July of last year. So about when the, about when the, um, when the uh, Olive Branch report got released. Well, the, it was definitely released before my conversation with him because I remember when I read it um, and I still wasn't living in Washington and the conversation I had with him took place in Washington. Um, okay. When that Olive Branch report came out, I talked to him. I also video chatted with Har Dave, um, which is um, the teacher that I took Kundalini yoga classes with. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of stayed in touch with him for a while and he was actually giving me financial advice and like telling me about his budget plan that was helping him. And I felt really motivated to get better with my money. And then during this video chat, he asked me what I thought about the reports. Um, 
And I remember I told him, I was like, I don't really know. I don't know what to believe right now. And I also was honest with him and told him, like, I haven't been able to practice Kundalini yoga in over a month because I'm kind of grossed out and just feel really uneasy about everything. And deep down, I felt really unsure whether or not my entire teacher training was a lie and all all of the healing I did wasn't real. And that was really hard for me to process. Um, That was probably the hardest part to process that. Um, So that was really the only two people I talked to, I think, about that. Were you feeling a, a parallel in your experience of what you were reading or you didn't necessarily like connect it to like what you were experiencing in your um, journey in the community so far? I, I witnessed sexism, but I was so blinded by my desire to belong that I was... I was brainwashed. It was like, it didn't, it didn't matter as much. It was like, I just, I had this community. I had these people that I met and I wasn't doing that well in 2020, but I still kind of held on to that and held on to it in some way. Yeah, Um, it was. Okay. So that makes sense. So you're still very much at this time, very steeped in the community and very much, this is why you're saying language. Like I didn't know what to believe you were very much. And were you wearing a turban and and like dressing in all white at this time and like full on Mm -hmm. sadhana and practices like, were you on full on lifestyle? Not so, like I said, 2020 was a tough time and I fell out of my practice for two months And when I moved to Washington, I started practicing again, but I wasn't wearing a turban every single day. I didn't start wearing a turban every single day until I moved to the ashram this year. Got it. Okay. So carry on. I just wanted to get a sense of like where you were at in relationships. So 2020 is nebulous. You're kind of back and forth trying to figure out what the heck to do with yourself. Then. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Go ahead. Then I start healing from a breakup I experienced and losing my jobs during the pandemic in Washington. And I start planning a move to Canada. I am actually, I was born in Canada, so I'm a Canadian citizen. And this is during the election where the whole country is a mess, the U.S. Um, So I'm just kind of focused on that at that point. I make a move to Canada. Um, I just do a lot of shadow work throughout the winter and go deep within myself. Then comes this year, 2021. And it must have been February uh, when I read, when I saw the flyer for the farm internship. Um. I saw it on like a Kundalini yoga teacher Facebook group. And when I see it, I'm like, oh my goodness, like I really want to learn more about permaculture because I felt very driven and called to start a permaculture farm with other like-minded beings and host healing retreats. And it just so happens to be at the headquarters of KRI And I'm still like under the spell. So of course I'm excited. 
and I send out an email. I was also planning Costa Rica move kind of on the back burner. And this came first. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this and then move to Costa Rica. That's kind of my process there. Um, so long story short, I got accepted after an interview about this internship. And, you know, nobody, nobody tells me anything about any of the issues that are happening on the farm that I later learn about when I get there. The internship ends up being a total shit show which is partly why I became more involved in the ashram community. So I'll just get into that a little bit. I get to the internship and I'm sharing a house with seven other people. <laughs> and the internship is actually separate from the ashram. There's one other Kundalini Yogi and then the, the other people have never practiced or heard of Kundalini Yoga before. And we're all very, very different, extremely different. And going into this, I have a very strict sadhana practice again. Um, I kind of fell away from it in 2020, but I got it back later in the year. And I'm like really in it. I'm the only one in the household who has a sadhana practice, who gets up at 4 a.m. Um, so we definitely clashed in certain ways. Um, I kind of struggled connecting with any of them really. Um, and as we go, so a few weeks go by, we start hearing Scout, the manager of the farm, our boss, complaining about management um, and complaining about not getting the resources that she needs to do our internship. And this is City Vishnu and Tarn Tardankar. Um, they are the like farm bosses. And she says horrible things about them. She says that City Vishnu is very abusive to her. Um, she says that Tarn Tardan doesn't listen to her. Um, and she, this goes on for a little while and she just continues to like, projectile vomit um, her pain and experiences that she's having with the management. And we're all dealing with that. Um, and I'm the only one at this point, brainwashed and all, I'm the only one who's sticking up for the ashram because then the interns and scout, they begin saying very negative things about Sikhs kundalini yogis and the whole ashram it's not just about management anymore and I'm like caught up in this web and I'm like oh my god like but but these people are amazing I'm like how could they think that because I'm so caught up in these illusions um because I believe in this community at the time so I am the only one who sticks up for them and so of course what happens here is Scout, the manager, begins to say rude things to me. She begins to be really rude to me in front of the interns and talking negatively about me to the other interns. So then the other interns begin having their own conversations as well. I start to feel really broken 
at this point because I don't really I don't really have anybody in this position. So I'm very vulnerable here. So I start going to the evening meditation at the ashram because I'm like, I can't fucking deal with this. Like, I don't have anyone to talk to. Um, I started talking to Jugget. He's one of the cooks. He lived next door to us and he was really nice to me. He's much older than me and never, never really made me feel disrespected like certain people have. Um, so I start going to the evening meditation and that's when I start connecting with the ashram community at this point. And it's kind of the perfect storm when I'm thinking about it right now, because I'm feeling broken. I feel like I have nobody in this place and they see an opportunity, you know, they see this vulnerable girl who doesn't have anybody to talk to. And so but no, pause, they, pause. You were also standing up for the community you believed in. So you were also, you were kind of a representative of kind of striving for that acceptance and yeah. doing it well, no, because it sounds like that's why you, so you're, I feel like you go into like hindsight of what you're aware now, but your experience then yeah. When you went into the community, did you feel that level of acceptance? Did people know that you were speaking up or did people not know about that? What was happening? No, I, to I, told, I told them everything that was happening. Um, so what was the reception you got? Um, I mean, they would ask questions and show interest. Um, and say like, oh, we're here for you. And like, you know, they would try to get me more involved and I'd be like but I still have to work at the farm you know because I, I did and what ends up happening is me and the interns clash so much that I'm not able to live there on the weekends because they want to party and I still want to get up for sadhana so this is my first time reaching out to the community for help still during the internship I believe this was May um, early May. And yeah, so I start, I just randomly talk to Jugget and I'm like, I need help. I don't know what to do. And I talk to City Vishnu, um, the other farm boss, which is a big no-no to the interns and to the manager. They get really pissed at me for talking to him and telling them, telling him what's been going on. So then I'm further kind of alienated from the interns. But yeah, I end up finding a place to live on the weekends. And I do feel accepted. I feel seen at this point. Um, I feel a lot more accepted by them. And so the ask, the ask yeah. was you wanted to find a place where you could stay so that you could wake up for sadhana and you reach into the community for that. And Sir Vishnu helps you get connected to where you could find a spot? Yeah, well, he he tries. But um, the way I ended up finding it was talking to Jugget, And then Jugget walked into the kitchen and this other person, part of the ashram, comes out. And he asks me how I'm doing. And I just, I'm honest. I'm like, I'm not really doing that great. Um, I'm looking for a new place to live. And then he immediately knows somebody who has a room available nearby. Um, and he just goes and asks her because she's right there. Her name is Sat Jiwan. And 
so yeah, that's how I, I get in contact with her. She immediately says, let's walk to my house. I'll show you the room and what I have to offer. And I go along and I do it. Um, I walk over there. It's not really a room. (laughs) It has like a curtain over the opening to the other room. So the wall is a curtain basically. Um, but it's something and it did actually serve me at the time and really helped me. So I was really grateful for that. I was also doing my level two conscious communication teacher training online at this point. So it was even more important to just have a quiet space on the weekends so I could focus on that and not feel distracted by noise levels. And who were you Um, doing teacher training? Who were you doing level two teacher training with? I don't know why I'm blanking on her name right now. Oh, Dr. Huddy does. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yeah. I was just curious. Yeah, that's her. Um, which I'll be honest, I was surprised at how powerful the teacher training was online. You know, I didn't expect it to actually work well, but I don't know. I've never been crazy about style, so it wasn't that powerful as well. It was kind of both. But anyway, I am moving into this space. It just so happens that Ravinder um, also lives there in one of the other rooms. And when I'm moving in, that's when he's coming back from some show he was vending at. This is the man I end up rushing into a marriage with. So this is how I meet him. I, he's in the driveway and I'm walking in my first night staying there and I meet him. Um, so, yeah, it was, he was seemingly like so perfect, you know, like I, with his like perfect turban, perfect beard. I'm just like, wow, like this man looks amazing. <laughs> and seems really interesting and he was a little funny so I liked that sense of humor and he owns a crystal business um he owns a kundalini yoga clothing business has lived there for a long time like seemingly just like this perfect angel (laughs) so can I ask you what would Please, make like yes. what were some of the things that felt perfect about it for you at that time and that mindset? Like what were some of the other things that kind of were landing as feeling perfect? If you can give us a glimpse into your state of mind. Yeah. Um, a spiritual God loving man who appears to be grounded um, in his energy. Energetically, he, he seemed very calm to me, but he was actually just really tired, which I later figured out. Um, but I really loved that he appeared to do honest work um, and did things that he was seemingly, a pa- he seemingly passionate about, which was later a lie as well. Um, but I really appreciated that. I appreciated, I saw him unpacking his groceries. He had really healthy choices coming out of the bag. I really liked that. I was like, wow, like he's really healthy too. 
And yeah, I mean, we, we talk about God, we talk about crystals. I'm like, I could already feel this connection with him right away. And and I he's a part of the Espadola community at this point. He's been a part of it. And the communication is that yeah. he's been a part of the community for a while. He's been, he's been there for 14 years. Got it. And his and family there or just him? No, just him. His Some of his family lives in India and some of his family lives in California. And the interesting thing is I remember seeing him at summer solstice and winter solstice because he also vends there every year. I never talked yeah. to him, but I remember seeing him like he always dresses like royalty. And I remember seeing him and thinking like, wow, like he looks godly. That, that was another attraction was that he just looked and felt godly to me. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, that was basically the main attraction. And, and then we get talking and I come on to him. I, I ask him <laughs> if he wants to show me Mexico because I haven't seen a I mean New Mexico sorry New Mexico <laughs> and I ask him that and he he says yes um, but what he takes that as is going to a furniture store with him which this is the first big red flag of this journey with him we go to the furniture store and I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Like, I'm just excited to get away from the interns at this point and grateful to be in a car with someone who seems really nice. And he's buying furniture for his new house that he just got and wants me to help him pick it out, which at the time I didn't really know how to feel about that, but that's definitely a weird first date. <laughs> Can I and pause you? Can I pause you? Where is the furniture store? It's in Santa Fe. Can you speak that out loud? Um, the furniture store is in Santa Fe. Um, so we drive from Española to Santa Fe on this Sunday after Gurdwara. Um, and we go. And the first red flag is how rude he is to the staff. Um. He, he's always, I start noticing this later on, like shortly into the relationship. Obviously, it was a short relationship, but he's very rude to public staff, to servers, waiters, any kind of public staff, really. Um, like he'll flag people down, like he'll aggressively wave people down. He'll be like, he'll just be really direct, firm, and sometimes extremely rude with things that he says. Um, but I'm like enamored by his beauty. So it's like, I notice it and I just kind of put it on the back burner, which is another gaslighting to myself because <laughs> my, my intuition like comes up here and there during this whole process, but I'm so blinded by my desire to belong and to be loved that I ignore it. And is this a store a that's within the community? Is it owned within the community or is it just in, in Santa Fe somewhere? No, just in Santa Fe. Okay. Yeah. So you're just so, noticing you're out in public and he's going, so he invites you 
to go yeah. furniture shopping with him for this new home he has. And you notice that, but again, you go into kind of gaslighting and carry on in your enamored state. Exactly. Yeah. So we end up going to another store, Home Goods in Santa Fe. Um, in which case he's looking for a shelf and we're like sitting in different furniture, like flirting like little kids and I'm having a great time. And he ends up asking me if I want kids one day, which is definitely really like fast to just ask that question. But that's another thing in this community and in Punjabi Sikh culture specifically is you don't really move forward with somebody unless you know that there's a potential um, to get really serious. Um, so he asked that question. I answered honestly. It was like, yeah, like I've definitely thought of it and I do want kids one day. Um, and so that was another red flag. <laughs> and then he wants me to help him pick out plates and cups so now we're picking out plates and cups I'm like kind of tired at this point but I'm still blinded by his desire to be loved I just I want to be loved I had envisioned myself marrying a Sikh man previously like I got really deep into that I had visions of it and I saw myself with this guy At the time you were having visions or earlier you had had visions and like this was an ongoing desire that you wanted to marry somebody in the Sikh community and this was something you knew already for a while? Yep. So this started in teacher training, actually. I had a dream. I married a Sikh man and also a vision and meditation and it seemed like that. Yeah. So you're full in that kind of story of what you're wanting and so here it is before you and it's not only before you but it's like one of the most it from what I hear you're saying like a regal expression of what's before of that possible fantasy yeah and later like had you always wanted to specifically be with like say a Punjabi Sikh within the culture did you want to marry to someone in the Kundalini yoga community that was health conscious like what was your thought process around like who you thought you wanted to be with you know as a Sikh man um yeah it was just a vision of a Sikh man I mean specifically he was not Punjabi in the vision I had um but I was relatively open and I did I was kind of mystified by the Punjabi Sikhs in the KRI community. They just, I don't know what it was, but the younger ones seemed very just magical. I don't, I don't really know how to, like very godly. Um, So it was just really a story that was created in my mind. Um, By when you were going to these fests, you're in teacher training. I'm trying to get a sense that like, it, the vision is one thing, but it's also like the app, the, uh, the energy you have going through this, like as your kind of life desire is kind of like, oh, I'd love to yeah. marry a Sikh man. And you're, you're trying to practice your sadhanas and you're as much in the lifestyle and wearing a turban. And like, it would be kind of a dream come true if you could kind of like look hook exactly. into that. So that's what I'm hearing even. And then the vision yeah. sounds like it solidified that, that, that was already wanted. Within- yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, he appeared to be funny, healthy, health conscious, just um, 
charismatic, charming, like all these different things. And he appeared to be very honest. And I want to point out that he is a salesman as his job. And he played the salesman role extremely well with me. Um, but that, that'll come a little, it'll come soon. Um, but we end up having a conversation a few days later because I end up telling him that I like him, that I have feelings for him. This all happens in the course of like a week and a half of meeting him. It's very quick. And I tell him I like him and he feels the same way. And then a couple days later, we meet to basically ask one another questions, make it or break it questions um, to see if we can move forward. Um, because he points out that he cannot go forward with me unless there's a chance, a big chance of marriage, basically. Um, because he does he won't have sex before marriage and that whole thing. And I I in my mind, I'm like ready to take my seek vows. So I'm like, yes, like that just brings us closer to God. And <laughs> so we have this make it or break it conversation. And I'm very clear with my make it or break it questions. I'm extremely clear, especially because I had just finished my conscious communication course. So I was getting kind of better at communicating anyway. And I was feeling very confident. So I told him, I was like, I need a partner who has ample amounts of experience doing shadow work and going within and facing traumas, patterns, conditioning. I even bring up, you know, like cultural conditioning as a possibility of being something that he had looked into. And I'm very, very clear about this. And I'm like, I don't want to be with somebody who hasn't done this kind of work. And he appears to be like this godly, like perfect human. And he tells me that he had a lot of experience doing all of that. Um, that he's been doing it for the past 14 years since he got to the ashram. And I believe him. I very much believe him. And then I, a few other questions I have is, are you a lover of being outdoors? Do you love camping? Do you love hiking? Do you love things like that? Do you love backpacking? He says yes to all of the above. And it's a simple question. Um, so there's those questions, you know, and I explained to him that my spiritual entre entrepreneurship is very important. So I work with people um, on their transformational and healing path. And I tell him that that's a priority in my life and it's building. And eventually I feel called to host retreats. And I don't want to live at the Española Ashram forever. I want to make moves towards leaving the desert and going towards the ocean. And he says he's all about that. He's all for it. He says yes to all of these questions. So, you know, I, I say yes to his questions. He had very basic questions for me. Um, he asked your... me if I was, Go yeah, ahead. he asked me if I was planning on getting any more tattoos. 
And I said, I would like to take my Sikh vows. So no. He asked me about my history with partying and drug use. I was very honest with him about that. Um, that's about all he really asked me. Oh, he asked me about my family as well, which I was also honest about. Oh, I'm sorry. And so at this time, um, are you like totally drug free and totally like living the lifestyle and the diet and you're wearing a turban yep. and you're fully enthralled and connected to the community and, and yeah. going, going to Gurdwara wanting to take your Sikh vows. So you're like full on lifestyle. And he asked these questions about your past to know how he wants to move forward. Exactly. Um, so I, I was just very clear with him about like what I wanted in a partner and my goals. And I answered his questions very honestly. And then we decided to go take a hookum to let the guru tell us if we're meant for each other. And it's, it's written in Gudamukhi. Um, there's no translation. So I don't actually get the actual translation here. He reads it to me and tells me what it means. And oh. he tells me, yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't even really know like what was said in that hookum, really. Um, but there's an English translation too, no? When you're reading this hookum. one. Oh. No, it wasn't this one. He he just told me what it meant because he can read it and knows what it means because it's his first language. Sure, got it. Yeah. Um, Where did you take the hookum? At the ranch Gurdwara um, at the ashram. So, I mean, there's there's two Gurdwaras at this ashram. There's the ranch ashram, which is where he lives, which is, like, that's, like, where the, like, really important people of the community get to live. It's just beautiful green grass, plants, just water fountains, all this great stuff. Yogi Bhajan um, lived over there. So yeah, that's where it is. Um, and then we're all excited. We're like, oh my God, we got Guru's blessing. Well, what was so the translation he gave you? All I remember <laughs> is he said something about peace. And he said, you're my Shanti. You're my peace. This is perfect. And that's it. I mean, that's all I remember, to be honest. That's all that stuck out to me. And clearly that's all that stuck out to him because that's mostly all he shared with me about it. And I was just so excited that I really wanted to go for it. I mean, mm. he'd always like, he would pay for things. He would give me all these gifts. Um, and then we start telling people that we are getting married. <laughs> And there's only two people who told us we should slow down. And they're a couple, they're a married couple. It's Siddhi Vishnu and Satkiran. Uh, Satkiran is kind of a well-known musician. Siddhi Vishnu is one of the bosses at the farm who kind of helped me get out of a situation in the internship. Um, so we get all excited about that about a week later. Um, 
the internship gets so bad and Scout says some really mean stuff to me that I call Ravinder crying and I'm like, I can't do this anymore. And he, he rents me a private house for me to live in um, and get out of the internship. And where and is that? I, I just need to get my charger really quick. I'm so sorry. So this couple, Sir Vishnu and um, Sakitin, uh, tell you to slow down. And other people say slow down, but otherwise you keep telling people. Yeah, no, it's only Sakitin and City Vishnu who tell us to slow down. Nobody else says anything. Everyone else appears to be so supportive and doesn't say anything about slowing down. Um, there's one person, Sarab Sarang Singh. Um, he wanted to hear that we took a hookum first, otherwise he didn't care. And we told him that we did. And, you know, we told him what it said or what I mean, I thought what it said, what Ravinder told me it said. Um, and that was that. Um, so the internship gets heavier when I share that I'm getting married. So they already don't really like me. And so this kind of allows them to further question me. And the manager starts getting really mean to me at this point. So that's when a vendor helps me, um, gets me out of there and rents me a private house because we're not married yet. So we can't live together or have any like sexual relationship. So he does that. And then we start planning the wedding. Um, Where does he move you? Is, Where do you end up moving? So it's still on the ashram. Um, okay. It's just on this little like side dirt road nearby. It's really close to the Gurdwara actually. Okay. Um, yeah. And now, I mean, that was a really great house to live in at the time. I really appreciated the time to heal and, but it was like, I didn't really have time to heal at the same time. You know, I jumped from that internship and we're planning a wedding as quickly as we possibly can. We literally plan a wedding and reception in three weeks. We do it all. Um, and my mental health was, I didn't feel good during a lot of this. I was exhausted beyond belief. And I'm, I want to rush because I want to really fully be with this man, but I'm not able to fully be with this man until we get married, you know, which is another great way to really hook somebody in. <laughs> um, so and yeah, the wedding are you doing your daily sadhana and you're doing practice? So you're, but you're acknowledging you're exhausted or at that time you didn't necessarily know you were. No, I knew I was exhausted. Um, and my practice actually falls away a bit, okay. um, during the wedding planning. But when you say your practice, you do, if I can get clear on what you're saying, when you say that, cause you've said it several times during the podcast, when you say my practice was getting like, I was off my practice, you just mean your daily sadhana. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not getting up at 4am to do a two hour practice. Instead, I'm getting up at 5.30am and doing a 30 minute practice. That's, that's what I mean when I say that, um, because I, in this community, there's a lot of pressure that, 
if you don't get up at 4am and do a two hour practice, at least a two hour practice, then you're not doing enough. So, so you're aware. So your language towards yourself around this at that time is, is reflective of that in general, like you're, you're still using it, but in central, it's like, I wasn't on my practice at the time, but at that time it was like a lot of self-judgment that you're not doing that because within the community yeah. that was normalized. If you're on your game, you're doing a regular practice. Otherwise you're not. Exactly. Exactly. Basically I was taught in this community that if you, if you don't do a two hour early morning sadhana practice, then you're not living or merging with your higher self as much as you could be, if that makes sense. So yeah, that was a really big thing. Like you always hear like, oh, do your sadhana, get up for sadhana. And it's, and everyone's always exhausted. It's like, I've looked at a lot of these beings at the ashram and everyone has bags under their eyes. And a lot of them really don't look healthy. <laughs> so yeah, that's where I was at. It was like the bags were under my eyes and I'm like planning a wedding. I didn't give myself space to process the trauma that I experienced in the internship. And I have this, idea story in my head that when I get married I'll get to relax when we get married I'll get to relax and I'll just be living the life that I've always wanted you know and I didn't say that specifically but there was this story kind of narrative in my head about that so yeah, I mean, so we are planning the wedding and a couple of arguments happen and I research about it and it says it's normal to argue planning a wedding and talk to one of my best friends. She tells me it's so normal. She got married. So I'm like, okay, like these fights are normal, but the fights... <laughs> really weren't normal. These really intense red flags started to come up. He, a pattern of his would show up and I would observe it. And it would be this pattern where he would deflect on an observation that I have of his behavior to point out an issue with my behavior without addressing what I bring up. Um, AKA gaslighting. Exactly. So this would happen. This happened a few times leading up to the wedding. And the, I remember the last fight we got into, I was really pissed off and I almost walked away. We talked for three hours where I was basically like fighting with him and telling him like, look, if you're not able to do the work with me, if you're not able to look at your patterns and your habits together, if we can't look at our patterns and habits together, I don't want to do this. And I told him again and again, I made myself very clear that first conversation that we had about this. When we decided to go forward with this, I made it very clear that that was needed in the relationship. And so when he gets scared and sees that I'm ready to walk away and I take the engagement ring off, I'm like, I'm ready to give it back to him. 
um, he gets scared and then just starts agreeing with everything that I say to sell himself again because he doesn't want to lose me. Can, Can you give promise? us an example of the um, the behaviors that you that you kind of had a uh, line in the sand so we can hear because you're reflecting on it as this shadow pattern and you're using language of a teacher which is fine but I to give us the experience of being in it if possible so that we can hear you know what I mean yeah of course so uh let's see like was there something yeah go ahead sorry Well, one of them is the way he would be really, really rude to staff and just be a total asshole to staff, like treat staff like they're his slave. And so, I mean, I definitely brought that one up. I also started noticing that he wore the same exact style of a shirt every day, as well as the same style of shorts, which is totally different. But I did ask him about that once and he did not like that. Um, but what do you mean? So you all- ask him about what he's wearing, like why he well, wears was, the same thing. Okay. I'm just kind of listing them for you. Cause it's just, okay. well, I, I was know, just trying to understand really- the interaction more like his response okay. to that is, was, was a, a, a pattern. You notice, I, I was trying to understand, I'm trying to ground what it means for you to identify a pattern that he was doing. So that kind of red flagged yeah. you enough to be like, this is, yeah. an, I think what I heard you say is what wasn't okay is that he's not owning some behavior. So what I'm wanting right. to understand is what was the behavior that you noticed that was kind of a flag. And one of them is like, he's wearing a this shirt and shorts, but, I, but what about that? No, that's, I mean, okay. so when I was just talking, I was just kind of listing things um, to just kind of brainstorm because oh, okay. so much happened in such a short amount of time. It's, it's not really the easiest thing for me to like delve into, but I'm really grateful for this opportunity. Um, the biggest one was just being rude to staff. And then that expanded into him being rude to me. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I would share something that I'd be really excited about, for example. And the way he'd respond, it would be like he wasn't really there at all, like just totally gone. Like his eyes would change. I would notice this change in the way that he even looks at the world. It's really weird. And so I would notice this tension in his eyes. His eyes would like do this thing where this wrinkle here like he always looks like he's mad and that kind of projects in the way he talks to staff it would project in the way he would talk to me sometimes sometimes he would just kind of say something to shut me up and I would feel that Mm. Um, so vile language that felt violating and you could feel the violation when you heard the language so from from watching it to expressed outward and then it would be directed towards you you suddenly were like holy smokes, there's a, there's an old pattern of behavior. And I'm guessing you were like, do you recognize that in yourself? Have you processed this within you? And so then you're trying to engage him in what you thought 
he would have already noticed of his own quote shadow work if he had actually yes. been doing yes. this level of self-reflective. Yes. Um, <laughs> this is what I'm gathering. So I'm trying to name it to yeah. ground it for us. Yes. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I really appreciate you rephrasing it. Um, that's exactly what it was. It was like these weird, like projecting of it was like anger being projected in these different scenarios. Also, insecurity was a really, really big one. Um, major insecurities, which later come more alive. But yeah, so I mean, I start pointing these things out because I'm like, you told me that you were really into <laughs> shadow work and you looked at all of your traumas over the past 14 years and you were really into that. And so that's when I almost walked away. It was like the third strike in planning during the, the planning of our wedding. Um, and he said all of the right things to win me and to keep me. And so I would get married to him. And I remember that conversation. It took like three hours. He was resistant at first. And then when I he saw me take the ring off, he's like, oh my God, like he got really scared. He said whatever he could to please me. Um, and I remember feeling really unsure, even though like he, I agreed to what he said. And I'm like, yes, like, let's do it. I remember saying like, see, doesn't like talking about these things feel really good. And of course he says, yes, he just wants to please me and like go along with it. Cause he doesn't want to lose me at this point. He told his mom, we were getting married. He told all these people, it would be very embarrassing for him to lose me before the wedding. This is what so, he's communicating to you. Is this, is this yeah. what you mean by saying the right things? Or were there other things he said that really reassured you? Well, he just assured me that he was totally open to having those kinds of conversations about habits and about doing the shadow work. And he, he promised me that we could have those conversations anytime either one of us felt like we needed to. And we, he agreed to wanting to practice conscious and nonviolent communication, even though he doesn't even know what that is. <laughs> he pretended that he did know what it was. Was he a Kundalini yogi and spoke the language of that with you or not necessarily? Was it much more just rooted in Sikhi? No, he was a Sikh. I mean, okay. he, he lied and told me that he took all these Kundalini yoga classes and he told me he would cook for the teacher trainings and sometimes he would speak at the teacher trainings. I don't know if that's true. I feel like it's definitely not. Um, but he would tell me that, but he didn't have, he wasn't doing a practice. He didn't start doing any kind of meditation or Kundalini yoga until after we got married. Got it. Um, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, he was, he was doing his bonnies. He's very good at that. Um, he says that he talks to God and that he hears God. You know, he reads these bonnies. He reads from the guru, yet he doesn't follow any of the teachings, which is also a very common theme at this ashram. Or, right. Interesting. Okay. 
Yeah. When you say the teachings, you mean the Kundalini teachings. Is that what you mean? I'm also talking about what's written in the Guru. Got it. The City Guru Grand. Okay. Yep. Um, Which a lot of it talks about looking at your ego and looking at yourself. It talks about dissolving the ego, merging with your higher self. It talks about um, suffering and pain being the gateway to bliss, um, among other things. But when it would get hard and when I would present shadow work to him, he would show a lot of resistance and a lot of just so much fear. He wouldn't, and this continued. So go into the marriage, um, our wedding ceremony, the hookum. Oh, the wedding ceremony. Okay. Where was your wedding? Yeah. So it was at the ranch in Española, which, like I said, that's where he has the house. That's where I'm going to be living. That's where Yogi Bhajan used to live. It's like the exclusive part of the ashram with the really are nicely you, cut grass and all. Are you enamored with this life that you're going to have? There was... I'll never forget this. Driving to the wedding ceremony, there's a voice that said, don't do it. And I was so exhausted that I was actually kind of annoyed with my surroundings deep down. I was very annoyed. I was like, I don't want to talk to any of these people. Like, I don't. I really just wanted to like hide in a room and process what I've gone through. But it's like, I had made it that far. I'm like, okay, like I just, I just need to do this. Um, So I really wasn't excited. I put on this face that I was excited because it felt like that's what I was supposed to do. Yeah. So at the time, though, how aware of these feelings are you? Are you I I know now in reflection, you're saying I heard this voice and that's really beautiful to explain the spiritual journey. I think, though, at the time, it would be helpful. Like what was actually happening then? Did you just did you were you just more really dedicated to the lifestyle and to this idea of who you were? And that was more what overtook the energy of the time because like again hearing you say this it's almost like you knew along the way that this wasn't the right thing but that rarely happens that way sometimes we get like an inkling but we're there's something else much larger pulling us you know what I'm saying Mm -hmm. yeah of course I mean I definitely wasn't that aware of it that's why I went forward with the marriage I ignored it I had put in so much work towards the wedding and I put in like so much blood, sweat and tears, like making the wedding gifts for the reception, um, getting to know the community more. I, yeah, I definitely wasn't that aware of it. Um, what did that feel like to be planning a wedding in this community that you've always wanted to be a part of and be accepted in? And here you are about to kind of get like this crown jewel of, of living in the ranch married to a Punjabi Sikh and and kind of like the picture painted white princess. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like it was the best case scenario. And when I reached out to my teacher trainer, Guru Mare, and I told him, 
because I had taken my Sikh vows at this point as well. Um, right there in Hispaniola? Yeah, I took it two, probably like three weeks before we got married, two weeks before we got married. Um, and the person who was my minister also became our minister for the wedding and she turned into something else. But yeah, I told Guru Mare about it. I was so excited because it does, it is like the three HO dream. And that's exactly what Guru Mare said. He's like, wow, you're living the three HO dream. Um, and he didn't say much, um, you know, like he wanted to see a picture of us actually. And I, I didn't send him one because at the time I didn't, <laughs> I was embarrassed to take selfies, <laughs> selfies as they call them, selfies with Ravinder because his nose grossed me out, <laughs> which is so weird to even say out loud here. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't like taking close-up pictures with him. But I still viewed him as this godly man, which is so fascinating. So I didn't send him a picture. And maybe there was something else deep down of why I didn't want to send him a selfie of us, a close-up photo of us. There could have, that could have been my gut. Okay, so you don't send a photo. Who else, who else do you tell uh, at this time? Um... Or does anybody speak just, to you? Yeah. Um, I tell my teacher, Isa, and he tells me that this is what I've been training for, which I later find out that what he meant by that was just simply awakening. Um, but he didn't say that at the time. So, I mean, I told my dad. My dad was not happy at all. He was very mad. Actually, he almost told me you almost had a heart attack. Um, so during this like whole some... wedding planning, you hadn't told your dad this whole time? No, no, I did tell him. I, I told him before I lived at the, that other house after living at the intern house. Got it. So even though he didn't approve, um, you were still just moving forward and excited. And Yeah, I hadn't seen my dad in a few years. And we developed a healthier relationship, but we didn't always have the healthiest relationship. Um, right now we have a great relationship and I'm really grateful, but yeah, um, there is some amount of racism in that side of the family. So, um, when I told them that I became a Sikh and all this, you know, they were really, really taken aback to say the least. I see. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you're still, all, yeah, you're still all, you're taking your Sikh vows. You're still all fully in the lifestyle and very excited about moving to the ranch. And yet you're also exhausted and pressing forward to this special yeah, life right. of being a married woman here in the community. Yep. So then Seem what else? Seemingly it's seemingly it's the dream. Um, yeah. So, I mean, um, Huddy Budgen is somebody who, is extremely supportive to the wedding, like more supportive than anybody, in fact. Um, and she helps with some of the planning. She plans my whole bridal shower. Um, she also plays my best friend 
during a lot of this. She's like super, like my dear sister, like so kind to me and talking to me about deep things, you know, about spirituality, about healing and transformation and God and all this stuff. And she seems to be so nice at this point. And so does everybody. Everybody just seems so loving and accepting and in awe of me, you know, it's all these compliments that are being showered on me and just all of this. I'm so happy for you guys. Congratulations. Just all of that energy leading up to the wedding ceremony. Um, so yeah, the wedding ceremony is outside. Um, I remember walking in the dress that weighs like 30 pounds or so. Cause I got the traditional, um, Sikh wedding dresses. Um, we flew to LA actually to go get it where I met some of his family. Um, and I'm exhausted just lugging around this dress, but I'm there, I'm ready for it. And the first thing I noticed is Ravinder sitting there in meditation, but he has that angry look on his face again like that he does, but he doesn't view it as angry because I had talked to him about it before, but he like, it's like his face gets scrunched up and he looks mad and there's no like sense of peace when I look at his eyelids that are closed. So I'm like dealing with that, but I'm like, you know what? It's fine. Like, we just need to do this. Like, this is meant for me. So we go through the ceremony, we end up getting the hukam, which I end up getting the full translation for, and it talks all about ego, duality, and suffering. And it says the word suffering twice, said the word duality three times. I think ego is just one time. And my stomach dropped. And I look around at people's faces and I don't see any changes faces. So I'm trying not to change my face and just be like, oh, this is a gift. And yeah, so that, that was really tense for me. But I, once again, I gaslight myself. I push it to the side. And the person who reads this hukam is one of Ravinder's best friends which not too long ago, I found out that a woman reported having been drugged and raped by this best friend in India several years ago. So this is, again, I don't really know if that's true, but it is a report and we need to honor that and respect that, like you said earlier in the video. So I'm sorry, pause at this time about that. At this yeah. time that you're talking about this, you knew this at this time, who this person was, or you just know this now no, no. in reflection? I know this now. I know okay. this now. I'm just sharing it because I will probably forget to share it. And it's just kind of important since his best friend is a rapist. Got it. Yeah. And so, okay. I was just trying I to get only learned context. This two weeks ago. Okay. Wow. And um, there, um, somebody had reported this yeah. about this person and people in the community knew, but at this time you didn't know, but you found out recently that people in the community knew and this has been documented as, as the case. Like there was a report of harm and this came forward and then it was never discussed openly in the community. 
I only know that Ravinder knew because his ex-wife told me that. And um, when we separated, I connected with his ex-wife and learned a lot more information. Um, okay. And she so did you're... share that with me. And she sounds like... And she told me that Ravinder knew. She told me that Ravinder knew about this. And during their marriage, he ran off to go be with the rape victim for a whole week but he didn't tell his wife at the time where he was going. So they had some kind of relationship there. Um, she still doesn't really know what went on, um, but that's, that's what was shared with me. That's what I'm aware of. And at the time you were getting married, did you know about Ravinder's uh, ex-wife or did that come out later? I knew that he had an ex-wife, but I never spoke to her and I, only knew what Ravinder told me, which was another like big red flag. Like he told me that she, she was all in the wrong in the relationship and she, she didn't want to do the work with him, which is a total lie. Um, So the language he's using with you, it sounds like is your language about doing the inner work. And so that kind of contexted his last relationship. Meanwhile, the, the person who reads the hook for your wedding is Ravinder's best friend, which you find out later after meeting up with the ex-wife, suddenly you start like comparing stories of what you were told to what she went through and you start piecing things together that now all is kind of trying to fit together, but you really only found that out once, once you left after the wedding, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I I can say more on that in a little bit. Um, I'll just try to keep on the timeline. It's hard. (laughs) It is hard, Um, but it helps us as listeners to know what's going on and to feel your experience of being in the experience is much more helpful than you giving Mm -hmm. us a synopsis of what you think, like what you now know was going on because it's a reflection versus like, this is what I thought. This is what I was going through, you know? And anyway, that, that we, that can land for us because yeah, it's your experience as opposed to you trying to make sense of your experience, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably stemming from um, embarrassment and shame. And I think that's why I keep doing this, that and sharing, um, going to what I know now versus what I knew then. So well, and it stemmed in embarrassment and shame. How about just stemmed in how fucking hard this is, sis? Like you're trying to share and explain an experience that is still trying to get detangled with inside of you. So just, you know, let's pause and just give yourself such beautiful credit because no doubt about it, shame and regret and confusion and all the things that we feel when we realize that what we thought we were going through isn't exactly the reality that there's a whole tapestry of illusion. And, and all I can say is to hear that you talked to an ex-wife of his and then started putting pieces of the puzzle that makes sense because now it's trying to make sense of something that didn't make sense along the way. So anyway, no shame in what you're saying. And I know what it feels like to hold that and be like, I can't keep track. I'm here to support you to stay on track so that we get to understand what was really happening and kind of your awakening to the moment, like, holy hell, how did I end up here? 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, like that feeling, how did I end up here? Started during the wedding reception that night. Okay. Um, so you were at the point where his best friend reads the hookum, you're in the wedding, you have this kind of sensory experience, but that's you're more tuning in. What is everybody else going on? And you're full on. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, we do our fourth round and we're married, you know, we do the rings. Everyone's all excited. I didn't cry once, which was kind of a red flag for me. Um, That was definitely a red flag for me, but he cried a lot. So, what is going on? So, yeah, it was really bizarre. And then, yeah, so we're married. And everyone wants to talk to us after that. And I'm like exhausted. And I don't want to talk to anybody, but we have to go do a photo shoot. It's like, it felt like everyone was pulling on my arms. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. But I I had to, I had to put on the show. Um, So we go through that. We go through like seemingly feelings of bliss and excitement. And yeah, so I don't know. We go through the day and kind of get ready for the reception. We go to the reception. um, they got our intro song like all wrong. Like the DJ did it all wrong. <laughs> so I'm like having a bridezilla moment, like walking into that. Um, my friend Hard Dave and the teacher I told you about, he actually was a big part of the wedding. Like he ends up being our MC and like making things really fun for everybody. Um, so that's really cool. He was actually my favorite part of the whole wedding, <laughs> which says a lot. Um, yeah, so we go through the night, the DJ like has our playlist all wrong. And I'm really frustrated about that. He's going off and smoking weed. And if he had been smoking weed and playing the playlist correctly, I wouldn't have cared, but that's not what happened. So then I get frustrated with him and I'm just like, can you just play like the Punjabi music because you're not playing my music correctly? That was like a big part of the wedding planning that we butt heads on was deciding the music that we wanted because he loves Bangala, I believe is what it's called. Um, Bangara? Yeah, Bangara. Bangara, yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, He loves that. And I really didn't. Like, I was familiar with it, but it, it didn't really do it for me. So... But I agree, we came to a conclusion where we would have both of our musics. And yeah, the DJ just wasn't playing my music well. And I told him, just play the bangara, okay? And so, you know, everyone's having a great time because they know how to dance to this kind of music. And I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm so uncomfortable, in fact. I like, I kept going to the bathroom to just sit and be by myself. And the second dress I wore was really heavy and hot. And yeah, I was just so exhausted. It was like I could barely even enjoy myself. The only thing that was making me laugh was Hard Dave. That's it. I was just like so sick of it. And 
Ravinder was like the center of attention with his dance moves. A lot of people know him by his dance moves. And I'm just sitting in a chair, eating fruit, drinking water, just like not wanting to be there, but still trying to put on a show for people. And yeah, a few days later, I told him that I didn't have a good time at the reception. And we start fighting every day. As soon as I move in, we're fighting every day. And I start noticing all these habits and patterns of his that are really weird to me. Patterns and habits I don't really understand. Like, and there's an issue with our sexual relationship. Um, he's unable to perform well, and he's very insecure about it. Um, so that's like a big issue already. Like we can't even have a passionate, intimate relationship. Um, so we're fighting every day about like all these little things. And that first week of being married, we get a marriage counselor already, which is a big red flag. And she's someone actually I've worked with before. In the um, community? I just need to pause. Yeah, in I the just community? need to pause for one moment. So he com you communicate that you don't like the reception. You start fighting regularly. Um, yeah. Sexual performance is not there. So there's obviously that. And you start seeing a counselor. And yep. suddenly you're like, holy smokes. Yeah. So, I mean, she's amazing. I've she's in the community from, she's not in 3HO at all. She's part of, um, ESA's community and like that. Um, there's a retreat center. All right. Yeah. She is part of like, I met her through ESA. So she's not part of 3HO and she's someone I always trusted um, and there was a big fight that led to me telling her that things were getting really bad. Um, so I'll, I'll share about that first, um, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, this was a very transformational fight and I almost walked away. Um, so we were laying in bed and we're having issues in our sexual relationship already and I was cuddling with my cat, really enjoying her company. She's laying on my chest. I'm really comfortable and I'm reading an article on my phone, just like getting ready to go to sleep. And he starts initiating, trying to kiss me and touch me. And I'm like, what are you doing? I'm trying to cuddle with my cat and just relax. I don't, I don't feel like being intimate right now. And I make that very clear. And he starts screaming at the top of his lungs in the bed, telling me all I care about is my cat. Screaming at the top of his lungs that he's, he's not saying I'm jealous of your cat, but I mean, it's very obvious. He's so angry. And like, I point out to him, I'm like, what are you what are you doing? Like, why are you screaming at me about my cat? And my cat runs away. She's scared of him. 
Um, and then, you know, I get upset because he's now scaring my cat and he scared me by raising his voice to me out of nowhere because I didn't want to be intimate with him. And it's, I can feel and see that it's stemming from his insecurity of his performance um, directly. Um, I can feel that. So, I mean, I get out of bed, I'm really pissed. I'm like, and we just start screaming at each other. And I'm like, this is so inappropriate. <laughs> you cannot get jealous of my cat. And I go sleep on the couch and I, I say something along the lines of, I'm sick of fighting with you. This is ridiculous. We just got married. And he mumbles something. So I go sleep on the couch and I text Sophia, um, this woman who has supported me on my spiritual path. And I'm like, I can't do this. And she happens to specialize with working with men's intimacy and men for the past 32 years. It's like what she does is specifically with men who struggle with their performance, older men, which Ravinder is not that old. He's 46, um, but hey, it is what it is. So I tell Ravinder about this and I'm like, we can either do this counseling or I'm done. <laughs> I'm like, at that point, I like, I we just got married and it's just a total mess, like a total mess right away. Um, we have two sessions before we're supposed to go to the honeymoon. And the sessions help slightly, but not really because he uses some of what she suggests to us. He manipulates it to match his narrative and what he thinks is true from what she said to us. So he has like, he's seeing through his lens of what she shared with us. I'm seeing through my lens with what she shared with us. And we still aren't meeting eye to eye. We're not even sleeping in the same bed because he snores so much. And, so, and these are things you didn't know because you were we're about to leave for the honeymoon. I don't even really want to go. Um, we're, we're fighting still. It's like we're literally packing for the trip. We had just gotten to another big fight about. I kept wanting to have these conversations about shadow work and looking at our habits and patterns. And he would get really mad and angry and tell me that I'm not his teacher and that he's doing the work plenty on his own. And that he even vocalized to me once that he was intimidated by my age and my being a woman and having those kinds of conversations with me. He, I remember shortly before the honeymoon, he had mentioned, he told me he didn't actually know what shadow work was. The sentence came out of his mouth and it was obvious that he didn't know. I didn't need him to tell me that at that point, but it was nice that he could at least own it. And then he lied to me and told me that he didn't remember telling me that he did know what that was. Meaning as a part of that one conversation to go camp oh. a, a part of your do and don't conversation or your, your final conversation. 
One second. Say that again. You're saying that he denied that one conversation of your marriage, like your your move forward dating conversation about like your questions and his questions. You're saying that now he's saying that he never said he knew what shadow work or that he never agreed that he had done this. Is that yes. What you're saying? Yes, exactly. And there are multiple times in the relationship where he, where he would remind me that his memory is really bad. That's what he would say that. Got it. And I would notice that he would kind of funnel through like these different thoughts, which was another pattern I had presented to him at one point. He like, we would have these deep conversations. And then a few days later, it's like, it didn't exist anymore. Meaning um, that he was playing deep with you at least, but you didn't. And exactly. so you thought he spoke this quote, spoke the same, what I'm hearing new age kind of like soul journey language. And really he doesn't speak that language at all. And so exactly. this is starting to come out that that a, he doesn't process this way. B he doesn't see the world through this lens and you're, what you're interpreting may or may not be his anger, right? In that his, it might be cultural. It could be the fact that he's Punjabi and you're not Punjabi. And there's lots of habits that yeah. he may participate in that don't go along with your projected worldview or right. the value system that you follow. But what mm -hmm. I'm hearing you say is that you thought he was agreeing to your world order. Yeah. Yeah. I, I meaning shadow it. language, healing internally, yeah. healing wounds, yeah. like not everybody lives life through that lens. And yet I'm hearing you say, yeah. You brought this up saying, are we on the same page? Do we see the world the same way in terms of are we on this healing journey together? And mm -hmm. what you're saying is that the language he fed to you at certain times mirrored that in agreement. And yet now it was coming out as like, basically, I don't know what shadow work is. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Yeah. I don't even agree with your worldview. Is this what he's actually saying to you at this point? Yeah, exactly. At this point, he's telling me that he doesn't know what I mean by inner work. Um, so I try explaining it to him. And this is another pattern that presents itself in the relationship as I thoroughly will explain something multiple times in many different ways to try to have him know what I'm saying. But it still doesn't land. Um, and this was partly why we would argue so much. Because well, sometimes, sounds, I, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Sometimes I didn't know like what he was trying to say. And a lot of the times he didn't know what I was trying to say. Right. Um, and we well, actually it sounds have, like it sounds like you would also go into teacher mode to kind of teach him what these things are. And then he would say back to you, hey, you're not my teacher. And so then yeah. there would just be this what you're calling what I hear you keep calling a pattern or habits basically could be um, you saying, hey, you know, you're doing this. And then he's like, hey, you're not my teacher. And you're trying to explain to him what inner work means or what dealing yeah. with the shadow or recognizing, say, anger inside. And if you don't feel your anger, then this is how it can manifest. Right. So you're trying to explain yeah. the concept. And then what I hear is coming out is that his his view of something is like, 
I don't have a clue of anything you're talking about. And he's finally like yeah. saying it for real instead of feeding exactly. you back what you want. Yeah, he finally owns it, um, which is a big step or it seems like it's a big step. But a few days later, he forgets that he owns it. And then it's back to the same cycle that keeps repeating itself. And after we got married, a week later, exactly, uh, we went to some circus thing. It was a date um, before the honeymoon. And we end up getting into this big fight because I noticed that he deflects on <laughs> talking about like something to do with internal work, with looking at something inside. Because this is what I do for my, this is my career. Like I literally, that's what I do. I heal myself and I help other people realize they can heal themselves. And I explained that to him that this is, this is my life. This work is my life. And so, yeah, it's just like another run-in of like that same pattern. And I, we actually end up going really deep and he opens up about two really, really big traumas in his life. And it makes a lot more sense to me, but he had never opened up about these two things to anybody in his life. And he's 46. And I don't really feel called sharing like what those traumas are because it's not important, um, but they are very related to the way that he projects. Um, and so, yeah, I'm getting like going into my psychology degree there, but it's kind of hard not to. Um, so there, he did try to open up at times but it was like a few days would pass and it would just go back to the same thing. And this would just keep happening leading up to the honeymoon, which is why we were fighting so much. Um, and I was just, yeah, I was really pissed off that night when we got into the fight about the cat thing. That's when I started losing hope. I was just like, he's, first of all, speaking violently to me and scaring my cat, who's my daughter. <laughs> and yeah, I was just, I was disgusted after that. <sighs> so the honeymoon, I almost don't go, but I'm like, you know what? We're going to Costa Rica. Like, I really do want to go. I was planning on moving there. And as soon as we get to the airport, he's being rude to staff again. And I get so pissed that I tell him I can't walk next to him in the airport because of how he's behaving, that I'm embarrassed by the behavior. This is like the beginning of the honeymoon. And it continues. And I tell him I can't sit next to you on the plane. I need space. <laughs> That's how it starts. And we go. We get there, still kind of disgusted, but I'm really excited I'm in Costa Rica. And the drive to the hotel, I have a full-on mental breakdown. I'm in this beautiful country of Costa Rica at the time. I live here now. Um, but I had been planning on moving there for eight months. And in that moment, I realized that I got married and jumped into the marriage because I was subconsciously afraid to move to Costa Rica by myself. 
and I have a full on mental breakdown about it. I tell him how I feel while he's driving. I tell him like, I, I literally say a lot, I fucked up my life. That's how I'm feeling. And he tries his best, you know, hope is definitely being lost minute by minute on this honeymoon for the relationship. And then the next day I take space to go to the beach and meditate. And the ocean talks to me. I, I do communicate with Mother Earth. Um, it's part of how I meditate. I like to listen to that divine voice, which I know isn't always language that everyone understands, but that's just kind of my process. And I could hear like that voice saying like, you're meant to be here. <laughs> you have community out here. You're meant to be here. And the next day, it's the same thing. It takes three days of our honeymoon where we go have dinner really, really fancy dinner. I took like 30 minutes searching for this perfect restaurant for us with the perfect menu um, for our vegetarian diet. And so he would have plenty of options to choose from with the perfect view, great service, all the great things. And we go and it seems okay for the most part. Like I'm just trying to enjoy it, even though deep down I'm miserable with him. Um, and I'm like, we're just, we're going to have a good date. We're going to have a good night. We go and it's perfect until he starts complaining about the menu. <laughs> and then I, I'm getting to a point where I'm going to snap. I do snap at this dinner. And he also flags down the server in a super aggressive and rude way. And I ask him, can you please not treat the wait staff like that? And then we start bickering and the complaints about the menu start building. And I snap. I tell him to shut his mouth. <laughs> and then he tells me to shut my mouth. And then I tell, look at him and I'm like, I'm done with you. We're done. I separate right then and there, and I leave. I walk out. He tries to chase me. I tell, I yell at him, like, turn around. Like, we're done. This is done. There's no, like, it's done. It took me. He never believed that we were done up until I left and moved out of the ashram. He tried to ask me to move with me to Costa Rica because as soon as I separated with him that night, I started like resuming my move to Costa Rica. I'm like, I'm not holding back from this. This is what I meant to do. And, and it, it got so ugly after that. Um, let me take a seat. We spend the rest of the honeymoon apart. We go back to the ashram. It's obviously really awkward. We agree that we're not gonna tell anybody of the news right away. Um, 
that we're going to try to live together for a month being separated until I move out. Cause I, I set the date, um, for a month later. And I should have, I should have moved out much sooner, but I didn't. So we're like, we're trying to live together while not being together. Um, while pretending that we're together with the community, I tell him I can't really show my face in public with him. Cause I can't, can't lie like that. Hiding was bad enough, but I wasn't leaving the community. I wasn't leaving the house really during this time. Instead, I was diving deep into my own rituals and just trying to heal myself in many different ways. I did a cleanse. I did different tarot readings. I was just doing Kundalini yoga, just trying to That's heal what I was going to ask. Are you fully steeped in Kundalini yoga still? Are you doing regular practice? And, and like, like when you would have tough fights, would you like turn inward and do Kundalini meditations? Like what were some of the practices you were steeped in at this time? Yeah. So I still had my meditation practice. It wasn't two hours at 4am at this point, but I still had some amount of practice. Um, I was giving myself tarot readings, just praying to God all the, all the time and going out in nature. We lived by these horses and I would just go be with the horses. I would take my cat outside on her harness and go for walks. And that definitely really helped me. Um, but for the first week, I actually felt unsafe about going outside in the community because during the honeymoon, I didn't just have realizations about the marriage. I had realizations about the community as well. Um, I stopped wearing a turban when? while I was in Costa Rica. While, while we were in Costa Rica, during the honeymoon, I stopped wearing a turban. Um, it just, it didn't feel right anymore. It was like when I spent time with Mother Earth, out here in Costa Rica where I'm was meant to move where I had planned like this whole move. It was like, I felt this sense of home and there weren't any humans validating me. It was just the unconditional love of mother earth in Costa Rica. And, and I, I listened to what I was guided to do and the guidance I got was, what are you doing? You know what you're meant to do. You know, you need to come out here and be with me. And it was like, mother earth was directly like speaking to me. Like you need to come out here and heal. You need to come out here and live your truth and continue creating your dreams into reality. Continue doing what you're meant to do. Can I pause yeah, you and just say, yeah. where do your Sikh vows come into all of this at this point, like within your own understanding of yourself, because you chose yeah. to take Amrit. And so like in this awareness as you're having, are you realizing that you never really wanted to take Amrit, that you never really wanted to be a Sikh? Like help us get a frame to lay on this back. Cause I love that you're getting called into something else, but where does this put a vow that you made that was within a context that you're suddenly seeing break up in front of you. But yeah. in all truth, this vow is very important to a lot of Sikhs in a long history and lineage. And so I'm just wondering like how you're relating to that at that point, you know? 
Yeah, well, I want to point out it was not Amrit. Um, so what they taught me is that there's like the Sikh vows, which is not as big of a deal as Amrit. Amrit, you have like 10 people like facilitating it. And it's like this whole long ceremony. The Sikh vows thing is a little, it's different. It took like 15 minutes. Um, you just do it during Gurdwara um, and you do it with a minister. And that's kind of what, it, yeah. So I mean, <laughs> This what did you do room? exactly when you did seek vows? What did exactly did you do? So, I mean, you just, she reads the seek vows and I nod my head in front of the guru. Bowing. Well, it was just like a little nod. Got it. It wasn't full on bow. I mean, there's a bow at the end, obviously. Was this when you got educated about taking the seek vows? Did, was this presented to you as like, um, this is what makes you a Sikhi so that you could marry a Sikh into a Sikh family? Or was that not like, did this give you a relationship to say the city Guru Granth or to Kundalini Yoga or 3HO that you didn't feel like you had before? Like what was in it for you about taking the Sikh vows? Well, I didn't feel like I would be worthy of marrying him unless I took the Sikh vows and he told me that he would prefer if I took them. So suddenly so, you're in Costa Rica and what was like a regular thing around, like you're wearing a yeah. turban, you're living a lifestyle and you're considering yourself, you know, blessed to have married into this family. And, and you're starting to realize that suddenly that wasn't true for you. This is what it felt like. I'll try to explain it as best as I can. It felt like this web of illusion and safety and validation and belonging that I was really like looking for. It felt like it all just crumbled. Like the way that Ravinder was treating me and acting and the way he lied and manipulated me it angered me so much. And this whole community views this man as some kind of king, like the way they talk to him, the way they interact with him. I just, I couldn't believe like that I allowed myself to get manipulated. And so I started questioning everything, everything, every single bit of it. Because I knew in my heart I was meant to be in Costa Rica. I wasn't meant to live in a super dry desert with no access to natural water <laughs> and just stagnant energy. That was the biggest thing for me that I realized was it was so stagnant. It was like, there's no room for me to really grow here. Um, there's no room for me to grow in the relationship. And I realized it so quickly as soon as we got to Costa Rica I started thinking about all these different patterns that I witnessed in other beings at, in the community. There were, um, I heard sexist conversations. I heard a homosexual conversation and I got, I gaslighted my, myself in those instances. This was I'm sorry. before. What I does it mean to have a homosexual conversation? What does that mean? I'm sorry. <laughs> They, okay, 
Um, yeah, I did not word that well at all. So let me rephrase myself. Um, you heard someone speaking about homosexuals? Yeah. And they, they were basically saying that they were, they were saying they were against gay marriage. Um, they were talking about that they were very much against gay marriage. And it wasn't just one community member. It was three people. And one of them said it was because they wanted to maintain their relationship with people in India because they opposed Sikh gay marriage. And yeah. then another person, mm-hmm. another person said that they just flat out opposed gay marriage. There are many sexist comments. I don't know why I said homosexual. No, don't. I, what I was just trying to do is understand what you were saying. Yeah. And- well, it's well known that that's the case within the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. And for a while, there's been an ongoing long-term conversation around whether uh, gay people could marry inside the 3HO Gurdwaras. And one of the arguments of a lot of people in positions of 3HO and Kundalini Yoga and the SSSC has been very deeply rooted that I'm not going to say it right because I don't know enough about Sikhi culture, but back in, you know, the, the main head people, maybe the Kaltucket, the, the, there's an organization in India that, that wouldn't be allowed and that as a 3HO, we shouldn't allow that. Well, I was a part of a lot of these conversations that I witnessed this being a very long, long story in 3HO. And yeah. so what I'm hearing you say is you just, in this moment in Costa Rica, you just woke up to realizing you had been hearing that all along but hadn't been paying yeah. attention exactly i i had no idea like or well, it wasn't, some part of you did you what i'm trying to get aware. at is i wasn't connected to the awareness of that happening up until i started questioning everything in costa rica so then when you came back and you're in the community, are you noticing that now in this time frame, or are you more having remembrances backward to other situations that you had had and now you're having a new perspective on? That's the second one that you said. I was, I was reflecting back. When, I, when we come back, I don't see anybody because I'm scared to see anybody because I know that once the community finds out that I separated from him, they're going to do exactly what they end up doing that I'll share. Um, but there was other like sexist conversations, um, a being named City Chand, who's married to Huddy Budgen. Um, he made many sexist comments while I lived there. I remember there was one about holding a phone and he said, he was holding a phone to like watch a movie and like his wife was holding it before and he took it from her hand. And he said that men can handle radiation better than women. And it was like such a weird comment, but that's the main one that stuck out to me. And I'm like, what? And it was a red flag at the time, but like the other stuff, it was like, I, just kept like pushing it off to the side because I was so blinded by these illusions and Mm. these desires I had. Which basically kind of broke apart as soon as you had intimacy with your partner and realized that this build up to this special thing of getting married, like a part of what I'm hearing is that 
because you weren't able to have intimacy prior to this special getting married, you didn't find out a lot of things that you did once this threshold of quote, marriage has happened. And that historically is very big in, in our community as well. And which is why I'm pausing here because this is cultural, you know, and it's so different in culture. And it also sounds like a lot of the, I can only imagine Punjabi culture versus say marrying a 3HO person that practices, you know, it's still very different culture. And here you are a white woman joining a yoga spiritual community and kind of having a fantasy land around what it means to marry this godly Punjabi brown man and coming from your own unconscious and well-rooted historical racist roots. What I know a little bit about your own family that you mentioned, and that lives in your own experience. And so here you are ending up projecting your own fantasy as much as he was probably projecting fantasy into you. And so what I hear is that suddenly you end up in Costa Rica and you realize Everything that I was allowing to happen was rooted in this longing to belong. And I never really wanted to be a Sikh. I never really wanted to marry a Punjabi man. I never really wanted to do any of these things, but I let myself get washed up in it. And not only that, but I started recognizing how the community itself was perpetuating my own fantasy. And perhaps that wasn't your fantasy, that the fantasy had come as a part of the mysticism of ending up in the kundalini yoga 3ho hierarchy to special fame and and peace inside and never being enough and the chase for enoughness and the chase for the purity of whiteness and this spiritual superiority that becomes this ultimate unconscious longing after getting into the teacher training machine are that is infused in our communities Mm -hmm. and the teacher trainings that continue to go on today. I'm pointing this out because there's so much appropriation in this conversation. There's so much cultural fantasy and la-la land that's not rooted. And that is so much than what I hear you saying in experiences, teachers that you respected and had good experiences with and thought you saw a clarity and a sense of belonging and connectedness were only framing back at you kind of your own fantasy, making you realize, wow, there was, wow, that was kind of abusive. Well, that was kind of abusive, but along the way, you didn't see it as that. And you kind of did, but you just weren't trusting yourself. Exactly. Yep. Wow. You just hit the nail on the head with every single point you just made. (laughs) I really want to pause here because I need listeners to really hear that her experience that she's sharing so bravely and the best as possible because it's all still very fresh and who we are and we're when we're first seeing something versus as it settles and we get more clarity around what's what's just taken place especially when we're talking about grooming and love bombing into into cultures that we think are one way and 
um, perhaps we don't understand. There's a long history of Punjabi culture that you might not understand facial expressions and needs and wants and expectations of a wife and expectations of a family. And what does it mean to take vows? And yet you're in this land of everybody reinforcing the purity of whiteness and spiritual elevation in the name of the teachings. And you very much speak this inner world, shadow, healing, um, soul calling language. And this is important because when the out, when, when allegations came out, when reports of abuse and harm came forward from the book forward, this started exposing what had been long living in our community a long, long time, but had never been spoke about. And what I see as a trend in the people that are in this language, I agree with the allegations. YB was a predator, but the teachings are so good. And that languaging, what I'm noticing, wraps up innocent yoga students on this soul healing journey, trying to do shadow work that end up trying to follow their personal path like you've done. And before you know it, you don't even know you're, you're pulled into layers and layers of ab abuse history, even though you saw in 2020, there it was, but you didn't relate it like it was happening to you. Like it was almost disguised in plain sight. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like I mentioned, I didn't really go to the ashram to join into the community. It was like just the stream of events. It was like, I felt like I didn't have anyone else to talk to. And then I felt so hooked into it. Well, what I hear you saying about that is that because of your commitment to sadhana and doing your kundalini yoga practice daily and being a part of that elite group that can attest to I'm a spiritual warrior, you took yeah. that stance, which automatically set you at odds with people that weren't a part of this culture that happened to work on that land. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what I find interesting about that is they weren't a part of 3HO and they're naming abuse and manipulation and things that aren't working, but you're standing up for no, they're good. You know, I, these are people I love. So it, it just sounds interesting that it, there were kind of different levels of dynamics, but it, a part of it had to do with you wanting to do your daily discipline of Kundalini yoga and being yeah. so firmly rooted that that was the way. Yeah. And Kundalini yoga was like the first therapy that I felt saved my life. Um, I, prior to that, I had three suicide attempts that started when I was 10 years old. Um, and Kundalini yoga was the first thing that made me not want to kill myself anymore. So I also had this like protective energy to the practice and to the community that did show me kindness and told me that they saw me for me and so, yeah, there's definitely like an attachment to the practice. 
for sure. Even still now, do you see that as a part of the predatory behavior that you got wrapped up in or no? Do you still see it as like a practice that is your reverent practice that heals and that has nothing to do with your experience? No, I mean, my practice now isn't just kundalini yoga. It's like my practice goes throughout the day and it's just, it's a lifestyle. Um, I don't, I don't call myself. I need to pause because okay. that is classic yeah. 3HO language. Okay. That my okay. life, my practice is my life. I, I'm just pointing it out because it's right. so yeah. much of the Kundalini teachings are rooted in the things that keep us disconnected from our bodies. And we might not even unconsciously notice it. So I'm wanting to know how much you're connecting your experience to your practice or more just that it was just this moment around Sikhi having nothing to do with your relationship to your Kundalini practice. You know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't actually know if I fully understand, to be honest. Um, Cause my, my practice now is totally different than what it was. I mean, I don't just look at the lineage of Kundalini yoga or Sikhi. I look at many different lineages of many different kinds of spirituality and yoga meditation. Well, I think that you're sharing that pretty clearly that you come from kind of this inner guidance that you're kind of letting, letting it show you in terms of the different experiences that have led you on your journey. I guess where, um, where I'm interested is there's a long history of practicing Kundalini yoga within the 3HO community. And now we're recognizing that there's a long legacy of abuse. A lot of the things you're naming, abuse, gaslighting, manipulation, you know, things you're trying to point out that have been rooted in the overstimulation of our bodies to not feel what's going on. And so like, like Kundalini yoga as a lineage, for instance, Mm-hmm. There has been documentation that that's not actually true. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Are you familiar with that and what you got exposed to or no? Is your relationship to Kundalini Yoga something that you've just taken as your own and this experience is just kind of not related to your direct practice because your practice is like one that you're kind of creating along the way? Yeah. I mean, the way the way I practice is I follow the recipe of a kriya and I do the exercises and I have my own experience. I'm not at a point in my practice where I will read the lectures and teachings of Yogi Bhajan and it's it's a lot different. Then I, I mean, I used to dive into all of it, you know, and be all about it. But now it's like, I'll do a Kriya sometimes, or I'll do a meditation sometimes. And I have a great experience. I get really high and I feel also grounded at the same time. And I feel calm when I do it. I love doing breath work. I don't just do like kundalini yoga breath work. It's there's so many different kinds of breath work. So it's I don't know if that answers your question. Um, I was more trying to get a lens into your relationship to your practice um, because 
so much of kind of getting swept into Seeky, as you talked about in your teacher training, is a part of the formula of Kundalini yoga teacher training. And then you start learning wear white, wear a turban, do this Kriya, it will do this, it will do this. And so now what I hear you saying is some of it you've let go, like looking at the lectures, but your relationship to the practice sounds like it's very much the same as it was before you, when you were in the community, you just have more, um, you're not doing it every day because you might do other things too. Yeah, yeah. I, I still like doing kundalini yoga um, and I still teach it because I, and I teach it in a very healing and respectful way um, to reach whoever I'm teaching and sharing the teachings with. Um, but it's, I combine a lot of different teachings when I teach. Um, and so I kind of do the same thing when I practice. It's like, it's not, I don't just do kundalini yoga. I put in a little shamanism in there and a little bit of Sufism and a little bit of Buddhism. And I just kind of like create, I've created a recipe for my healing that works for me. And one of those tools is some of the meditations and kriyas in kundalini yoga. Um, and they do work for me. And would you context that as like, you still practice uh, kundalini yoga as taught by Yogi Bhajan, like using the formula, using the kriya and tuning in. And do you kind of follow that same system or do you do it in a way that you've changed it in some capacity? Lately, I've been doing my own thing. Um, when I teach a meditation to somebody, I'll look at the teaching and I'll look at what it says and I'll do what feels intuitively true for what the student needs. So no, I don't follow like exactly what it says. I do what feels intuitively true for me and for the student in the moment. And so in doing that as a teacher, do you not wear white when you teach? Do you wear whatever you want? Like, how does that show up for you as a teacher in terms of the things you used to do and then don't necessarily do? Yeah, so I don't, uh, you know, we're all, we're all white sometimes, but it's because it feels good to me. Um, sometimes I wear a headband because it feels good to get my hair out of my face. Um, but that's, that's about it. I don't, I don't wear a turban anymore. It doesn't feel right. It feels like I'm representing something um, that I'm not in alignment with. How about your so, relationship to your own tattoos and your body in terms of that? Like, has that changed when you kind of stopped relating yeah. to want to be a, a Sikh woman? Yeah. In fact, I got a new tattoo about two weeks ago. <laughs> And it felt really liberating. So, yeah, I mean, leaving the ashram was when we got back from the honeymoon, those that month was one of the most traumatizing months of my life. What I experienced moving out of the ashram. Um, tell us about that. So it, what? Want to tell us about that? Yeah. Let us know what you want to say to listeners, like this last wrap up view, just we're wrapping up your experience right now. And then we'll try to get into the last of the details, but like, 
where are you at right now? You know, with this experience and within yourself and what you want to say about um, your experience in 3HO Kundalini Yoga community and what you now know that you may not have known. Yeah. Um, well, basically what happened on my way out is people pretended that they wanted to be there for me. And then they said really horrible and degrading things to me. Um, and it was just a lot of, it was a lot of verbal abuse. Um, well, Sarah Sarang Singh, who played uncle, um, wrote me like a 10 paragraph essay via email telling me that, that I was a stuck up bitch and a prima donna and that everything every abusive thing that's ever happened to me, every terrible thing that's ever happened to me in my childhood and teenage years, I brought on to myself. Um, and that I should apologize to everybody at the community. Um, he said this a day before I left. Good Prasad, the minister, cornered me in a moving car and told me that Ravinder abusing me and degrading me was my fault because I made him that way. Um, wow. And it's just, it's just a lot of different scenarios like that. I received nasty texts from community said they wanted to talk to me, but didn't want to be seen in public with me. Um, it was just horrible, alienating stuff that I, I don't know how important it is to get into it, but basically nobody reached out to see if I was okay. Um, there's only one woman who was amazing to me, which was good to meet. She let me house at her house for the last week and a half I had. Um, and that was outside of the ashram though. I mean, she's still part of the community in some way. So that was great. Um, where I'm at with all of it now is I'm, I'm obviously still healing. Um, it hurt me a lot when people said certain things to me and didn't care to hear what I experienced because Ravinder was going around playing victim and acting like he didn't know what happened, that he didn't. He didn't understand, even though I explained it to him almost a hundred times in different ways. And some of these people pretended that they believed me and then they all, they just all turned on me. And it was a really horrible feeling. It brought me back to my childhood when I was once bullied by all of the neighborhood kids because I had a birthmark and they all ganged up on me. And I, like, I, I felt like that again, I felt that like alienation, like abuse, just horrible. But this was obviously way more amplified. Um, so yeah, I, I'm healing right now. Um, I live in a secluded cabin and mother, with mother earth surrounding me with my cat. And I just practice connecting deeply to myself, merging my finite self with my true self. And 
I'm doing my best and it's been extremely hard. I've definitely been struggling. Um, that's healing. It's, it's not always cute and it's not always rainbows. Was this month that when you came back before you left, was this the first experience that you had where people within 3HO or Kundalini Yoga community and the, all the relationships you had, where they kind of turned against you or you had this experience where lies were told to you or you were told like this behavior is because it's your fault as the wife or um, yeah. it's your karma or like what that long 10 page letter. Is this the first experience that you had of that in, yep. in the community? Mm hmm. Yeah, my very first and my last. So you went from having the experience that it was the dream and, and but you knew it sounded like you knew when you came back from Costa Rica that if people found out that they would turn against you. Intuitively, I knew that that was going to play out because when everything that I believed in started to dissolve in Costa Rica, it was like. I felt that anything was possible. And then I started thinking about the culture and how sexism is very much alive and how it goes way back that like, if a woman uh, speaks up or says anything that it's her neuroses or it's her hormones or it's this or that, you know, it goes way back to like the Salem witch trials. It goes way back before that, Whoa. you know. Yeah, but pause. Let's just keep it. It goes way back into the teacher training and how Kundalini Yoga is taught as yeah. a body of work to do soul healing shadow work. Yeah. Of and course. yet the community itself doesn't actually do soul healing shadow work according to the way you interpret it and relate to it in yourself. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, definitely. And it's, this pattern is obviously very much alive in this community, but it's very much alive in a lot of different cultures. I know that's not what we're talking about, but it just feels true to me to vocalize that. Yeah, and I don't disagree, Shanti. What I want to point out is that's one of the ways that we use to disembody and go into a spiritual bypassing state to not okay. actually be rooted in our own trauma body. We just find okay. the next thing that gets our sparkly attention that's finding this message inside. But when we can start to recognize that we're the ones that are actually not staying grounded in our body because perhaps yeah. we're using too many tools to overstimulate and disconnect right. and then project our historical trauma into new places. And then those communities can feel that as you've spoken, you were juicy prey as much as they, the people might be predators. Yeah. Yeah, you know? no, I absolutely hear that. And I really appreciate you just reminding me of that because that is a toxic pattern that's very much alive. It's like, uh, I'm having reflections back to the internship when they would like point out like the sexism and stuff. And I'd be like, well, it happens in all it happens everywhere. It happens in the CEO building of a company. And yeah, it's fucked up okay. that we do this. Okay, so, so ding, ding, so ding. 
And this is how a lot of the, quote, teachers that saw and read the report called the olive branch that had 30 plus women all speak forward about patterns of behavior that were at different times called very sadistic abuse. And so when teachers use spiritual language to not have us name what's in plain sight, instead we use language like abuse is everywhere. It goes all the way back to the first ages of time when women were burned at the stake as witches and mama earth is calling me and I should trust. And I'm not trying to downplay your process. What I am trying to point out is that it's this type of language that allows Mm -hmm. us to get wrapped up in the fantasy land of not naming abuse for what Mm -hmm. it is. We call it, I'm not sure if I believe the allegations. Yeah. And when we know, you know, YB didn't do it by himself. He did it with a long history of a community that supported and propped and propagated him to have nebulous powers that helped us be connected. So this language of like, I got, I had a vision. I had a dream. We can keep using that. You can move to another country and we can keep using that language, but it's still all wrapped up in the same type of appropriation. You know what I mean? And this I do is know where, what you mean. Yeah. This is what gets hard about it. And so that's why I came back down. Yes. It goes all the way back to the age of time and women not being in their womb space. And these are wonderful teachings, but I want to land it to say, when we do that, we become more susceptible to communities that Mm -hmm. then prey on that because we're using the language that exposes, Hey, I have a long history of trauma. Like, I have a long history of abuse and it's safe. Like you've referred it a couple times on this episode. He played uncle. So when we come from a history of abuse, we, we can trust and we open a lot. Right. And then we make ourselves open to then not seeing what's in plain sight. And then communities feed on that. And then we don't notice these patterns Mm -hmm. of behavior that were as much playing out in us as the community is playing out with us. Right. I, I really do appreciate that reminder. Um, I do, however, want to point out that when I talk about the root of something, it's because that that is part of my practice in healing myself as I look at the roots of a pattern or a habit that I have, and that helps me like start healing it. So when I mention the Salem witch trials, I just mean that while we are like talking about this, it was not my intention to deflect on it or to say like, oh, well, it happened there. So it's not as bad because that's not what I meant. What I meant is it's important to look at the roots because these traumas are deeply rooted within us um, us women, you know, and it dates way back and it, we carry this programming and conditioning that comes from all of it, you know, not just in this community, but this community is, it's a big issue. And that's why 
I wanted to come on here and share my experiences and just hopefully inspire someone else to speak up about their traumas that they experienced. Yeah, and I definitely didn't mean to make it sound like you spoke anything other than you did. Like I I okay. know that your journey is very much rooted in your process and it's very, still very um it's unfolding is what I hear so much mm-hmm. and your understanding of of all the ways I speak a lot of the same language you do is what I'm pointing at. I speak when it Mm -hmm. comes to like the roots of something and finding patterns and conditioning. I feel like where we can go off into la la land with it is when Mm -hmm. we think other people have that worldview too, or that it's the only way to view the world. And that very much, I feel, I'm pointing out, is a 3HO Uh, super three H O E, you know, is okay. like get wrapped. I'm just sharing that, like in my experience, it's a way to not feel what's actually going on, and so it's a way that uh, it just keeps getting perpetuated, right? Because it's happening all around us, and then we just kind of move on to kind of getting a deeper understanding, but not everybody sees it that same way. And so we end up in another community and then the patterns replay themselves again. Are you with us? Are you frozen? Well, folks, I am going to land this cart and see if Shanti comes back with us or land this plane This has been very, very intense. Um, So much I feel of what she's sharing with us is how the new age spiritual movement has language that then communities like 3HO and Kundalini Yoga can use that language to kind of create a web of trust and assumed support and um, really deep layers of predatory behavior that... um, that are everything that our intentions talk about appropriation, exploitation, and kind of whitewashing and lightwashing. And I hear that so much like, wow. To hear you say that like the, the ultimate, the ultimate goal was to like marry and become this devoted, why, you know, like, it's so powerful to hear that as a yoga student, you came in as a yoga student on the spiritual path, speaking this language of your healing, your soul journey and on your shadow work. And again, this is very common spiritual language, whether it's like you said, you know, shaman and, or Buddhism, but all of these are examples of appropriation and ways that we, ex- you know, create practices and, um, it's so challenging to feel it's this exhausting. Mm-hmm. It really is. And very, very uncomfortable, I want to say. Mm-hmm. But yeah, absolutely. All the ways that abuse is in, in plain sight that we don't call abuse because it becomes so normal. 
And because we're wanting to feel so connected and longing to belong, one of the reasons that we can fall prey to this type of, you know, behavior is because it's a primal human need. We all long to belong. And so having the courage to speak out and name things out loud, even to speak people's names to the situations you went through. I don't know anyone that you spoke about. I don't know any one of them, but I know there are people listening that know exactly what these behaviors indicate and long histories of them and how we get swept up into the fantasy of whiteness, spiritual yeah. whiteness, this elevated state. Yeah, it's it's extremely toxic. I'm, I'm really grateful that I was able, I'm just grateful I have been able to awaken to these really important realizations and truths because I want, I strive to live my, from my soul's journey to do what I meant to do, which again, I know this is language that not everyone understands, but I don't, I don't really care right now because I'm tired. <laughs> I'm doing my best. Um, and that's true to me. So I'm going to be true right now and authentic. Um, yeah, I mean, all of this has pushed me to simply do what I meant to do, to do what lights me up, not just short term, but long term, living a life that lights me up, makes me excited. That's what this has pushed me to do. And I am grateful for that. And I do have compassion still for abusers because I know that it's just inner pain that's just being projected and it's a horrible place to it's a it's a tough place to be to be so soaked up into that inner pain living from that space not even being aware of it doesn't mean I agree with it or support it (laughs) But I am trying to practice compassion, especially for myself. Was there, I know we didn't touch on it except for briefly. Was there more that you found out when you spoke with the ex-wife of of your husband that like made things come into perspective? Yeah. I mean, she had the exact same experiences that I had. Yeah. And we never knew each other. Were they, in the, we, were they both in the community? Was she in the community too? Yeah. Yeah. And she, so, and she was silenced exactly the same way as I was. People didn't believe her either. People called her the crazy ex-wife. Yeah. The angry ex-wife. And um, there's a couple experiences that obviously weren't super similar. Like, I couldn't even really explain like the, the pattern of those experiences, but there was that one point where it was their first day of the honeymoon and he yelled at her and told her that she needed to obey him, that she's his wife and she needs to obey him. And she, she experienced a lot of lies as well. Um, he had an affair with somebody else and he lied about it. Um, 
He lied about a lot of little things. He did the same exact patterns. Um, she told me that she thinks his habits and patterns have gotten worse um, since they were together based on what I shared with her. Um, but yeah, but two, I mean, you two were like comparing notes. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what we did. And actually she has really helped me heal through this because she really listened to me mm. and didn't shut me down. She actually like, she believed me because she experienced the same exact stuff. So yeah. I am grateful for that. I really, really am. Um, I pray that this, <laughs> that another woman doesn't have to go through this with him. Because you're speaking out loud. And I just want to say that because everything you're speaking to is, is long histories in so many of our families within the 3HO Kundalini Yoga culture from infidelity to the, you must obey, or when this doesn't work, it's the wife's fault or, you know, putting yeah. it back into spiritual karma or, mm -hmm. you know, all the ways. And then even going back to kind of the uncle and the auntie, the perceived safety, how much yeah. there's this kind of like atmosphere that's created where we're safe to share our trauma. And then how unknowingly people in the community that are supposed to be safe and trustworthy, there's, you know, behaviors that really are steeped in misogyny, abuse, predatory, inappropriate comments, you know, this whole thing around women are supposed to operate to serve the men, like all this stuff is so old, and it's so deeply rooted in this culture. And as you've pointed out so eloquently, historically, all around the world in the long history of our humanity. And so hopefully listening to this, we don't bypass and jump out into the spiritual nature of how all things are dualistic and we have to find the right choice. No, we can start landing this plane and saying, no, this is abusive behavior. And there are lots of women and men and children and lots of other ways that people have been abused financially, sexually, spiritually, psychologically. And mm -hmm. you touched on so many of them by sharing your experience today. And I know that other people listening are going to hear your experience and be able to hopefully pierce their own lens in some aspect of themselves, because that's what so much of this is about. We can't yeah, see ourselves right. in the own, in our own picture frame and we get pulled into communities that seem so trustworthy and it doesn't mean there's not good people within the community but like this is a prime example the ex-wives coming together to find out what's what the community could if dealing with emotional things properly could be talking about in plain sight we could be talking about there's no reason you ended up getting married to somebody in the community that you didn't know that was the case. The fact that that goes on and that goes on more than with you, it's gone on with lots and lots of people and lots and lots of people have been called the angry woman, the angry woman that's, you know, commotion, commotion. And all of yes. this is so deeply, the reason I touch on the Kundalini yoga teachings is because all of that comes from the way YB really formulated these practices and mm -hmm. I personally am of the belief, and I want you to know I 100% respect all the ways you choose to move forward with the tools and mm -hmm. your ways you do your 
personal spiritual practices. I'm under the, the conclusion that there isn't a Kundalini yoga lineage, that it's actually a predator based lineage and that there is Kundalini yoga energy that went back far before YB existed, but that he was an mm -hmm. excellent appropriator and um, cult leader that took lots of fragments of truth and put them mm -hmm. together into this shiny white ball. And that shiny white ball is still being perpetuated through the Kundalini yoga teacher training system. Not by all mm -hmm. teachers. Some teachers may be speaking to the predatory formulas that are in these practices. But I think by far what I'm hearing in your story is that not enough are. That we're using language like neutrality and spiritual journey and, are, and mm -hmm. we're still relating it back to these nebulous spiritual bypassing ways to not name abuse for what it is, which is what mm -hmm. pulls us into these places that seem all shiny on one side. And then you look at the shadow that's not being dealt with. And there's a long history of that shadow not being dealt with. And yeah. there you have it. Yeah. I mean, I don't affiliate with 3HO nor KRI nor do I relate to these so-called nonprofits, <laughs> some of the greediest organizations I've ever come across with some of the greediest business people. Um, yeah, I'm never, ever, I never really want to step foot into a Kundalini yoga ashram again. I believe there's bits and pieces of the practice that are very valuable and I just want to share those bits and pieces that have been super healing and transformational for me um, in different, different ways. Um, yeah. And it's like, I don't, going forward, you know, it's like, I thought I would do this video and like feel, feel a lot better you know, and I, I do feel a little better, but I definitely don't feel like I had hoped I would feel. And that has nothing to do with you. You are amazing. And this has been a deeply healing experience. It just goes to show um, how traumatizing these experiences are and how much they can cut deep. And, you know, it's definitely going to take some time for me to heal from this. Yeah, I want to just honor you for coming forward and wanting to um, express it out loud. It's a it's a beautiful, courageous thing to speak things out loud that we're still detangling and processing inside. And um, I honor you in the space that you in and also everything that you're still birthing and coming through into awareness. Um, because this is very fresh. I want all listeners to really know that, you know, this is this is hot off the presses in terms of kind of like what we talked about earlier, you know, if, if her journey kind of was like this orgasmic experience, she kind of just reached this climactic point of like this full on her own worldview kind of illusion breaking open and um, to come <laughs> forward at this stage, sometimes awarenesses that you're having now at a future date, you might be like, Oh, and that's a part of the trauma healing journey. So it is courageous to speak out and it is courageous to let ourselves listen to someone in, in their process. They don't got it all figured out. They're just trying to name out loud what has felt very hazy and cloudy and 
so crazy that if we keep it inside, it literally can cause internal psychosis. A part of it is like, yeah. we got to get it out. So breaking mm-hmm. silent culture, gaslighting works because it's encoded in silence of culture, you know, predatory behavior works because it's encoded within silence culture. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's uncomfortable for her to name people. I want you to know everyone that's been named. I don't know you. I don't know your experience. But this woman is sharing her experience, her real-time experience, and that's what it is. And other people get to listen and be like, wow, did I have a similar experience and I haven't named that abuse yet? Because I've been told my whole life that's okay, and I'm swirling inside about whether it's okay to say it out loud because my neighbor might be affected, and this other person I love might hear it, and this person, that's a part of the predatory formula, and that's what keeps us in silence. And so it keeps us stuck in our own bodies and our own healing process. And so I just want to say that because I know you know that because you're so in this work, but I want listeners to really hear. It's not easy to, to speak when someone, when you are in a process at this stage, because it's like, whoa, the cards came crumbling down. And I want to honor that the process that you're becoming is going to perhaps we've talked about this, maybe in future uncomfortable conversations, we'll have like, a year from now and kind of insights that are different from this one, you know, and this is powerful because this is what it means to start speaking to where there are cobwebs of abuse that we don't know how to say out loud because we've been told it's just not okay. Going back to the shame, going back to all the ways we gaslight and guilt ourselves for things that happen to us. And before you know it, you're like, oh my gosh, how did I get here? You know, and it's some part of me knew and another part of me didn't because the wound is pulling me more into the experience than, than, you know, quote, the higher self in this, in this spiritual language world, everybody. <laughs> so I hope that landed that plane. How do you feel? Is there anything last you want to share before we wrap up? I just, again, want to say thank you. I... I do feel a couple of the weights kind of lifted off um, just to have an opportunity to fully be heard and listened to because I, I have not had that, you know, I've had conversations with my dad and, you know, a few people close to me, but not to the point where we dissect as much as we have. I've done a lot of my own internal dissecting and it's like, sometimes I feel like I'm going in a circle with it. So this was like a really nice shift of the circle. I feel like we kind of went more in a trapezoid, if that makes sense. Now I'm using metaphors that probably don't make any sense to anyone, but that's okay. Um, it's, It's nice to have this experience, this new and different experience. I definitely, I do feel better. I feel stronger. Um, I still feel nervous being on this recording, but not as nervous as I felt when we first started. So, <laughs> yay. Well, I hope listeners enjoyed it. I hope you heard the, the, all of the gems that were just in so many multi-layered 
um, expressions and examples as she shared her story. And Shanti, I just want to say thank you. Um, and yeah, we don't have a song today. So we're just going to go ahead and sit in a moment of silence. Unless you have a song you want to share. That's what we had come up with. Yes. Yeah, I don't I don't feel like I have a song right now. Fair enough. Check mark that. Let's sit in the echoes of what has been shared because a lot, a lot has been pierced and exposed. And let's listen. Well, folks, this concludes another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. If you would like to contribute to this broadcast, you can make a one-time or monthly donation at gurunishan.com slash uncomfortable conversations. And if you'd like to share your story and be a guest on the podcast, please send me an email at gn at gurunishan.com. You can subscribe and follow my work at gurunishan.com as well. Please remember that this is people sharing their own stories and experiences within the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. And everybody's experiences are rooted in their opinions and their experiences. And that's all we can ever share. The courage to come forward and to break the silence is how we break the tapestry of predatory behavior historically, and well into the present and the future. Thank you for your courage to break the silence within yourself and within our community by sharing today. Thank you so much for having me.